Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with your 2023 WWE Survivor Series War Games Ultimate Preview. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the world of WWE. But not only that, we are indeed here to bring you an ultimate preview to 2023 WWE Survivor Series. War Games! And we will be breaking all of that down for you by the end of today's show. Every single match, the storylines, how we got there, predictions for what's going to go down, and our thoughts on how these storylines will continue after WWE's final main roster premium live event of the year. Vintage Chris Vanini is here along for the ride. You will hear from him momentarily. First, as always, the Silver King needs to kick off this edition of Getting Over with a reminder that this podcast is all about defy. So please, folks, stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, Vintage Chris Vanini, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcast and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. This is Thanksgiving week after all, so perhaps you can leave a little bit of thanks for the Silver King and Vintage, and we would appreciate that in the form of one of those five-star written reviews. We love to get boosted up on Apple Podcasts, and the five-star rating on Spotify, also important. Another item that is important is to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Not only do you get all of that when you follow us on Twitter, you can also DM us and tweet us questions and comments that we will read on the show. And you can vote in our pre and post show polls surrounding premium live events like Survivor Series War Games. We will have one about an hour before it begins and another immediately after it goes off the air. Again, you can get all of that by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over sign up. You will get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reaction after all the television shows, at least for WWE and AEW, with the exception of the Saturday show uh, every single week. Also, you get exclusive news posts every Friday. And thankfully, we have two new members on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over official getting overheads first. D. Martin, who signed up as a monthly user. We appreciate you. Also, Michelle Murray bought us five meats and had this comment that they left. I love the podcast. I literally can't wait for the new episodes to come out. Chris, you and I always make the same observations about Gunther's outfits on Raw, and it tickles me every time. (laughs) I love the breakdowns of all the matches and segments and hearing what you guys think without the tribalism and BS that comes with so many other podcasts. You don't miss anything, and I really appreciate it. Keep up the amazing work. Hopefully soon enough, I'll be able to join for the full year. But because you guys are inspiring me, I'm starting my own wrestling podcast. I acknowledge you two for being real and not just mouthpieces for companies or the toxic IWC. So I loved this message from Michelle. I also love that I get to say Michelle, very similar to uh, the dodgeball consigliere Michelle. Uh, But I loved it up until the part where you say that you're starting a podcast and you're trying to compete 
with this performance-enhancing audio that we're bringing you right here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. I'm kidding, of course, Michelle. Best of luck with that. I hope the show goes extremely well. Having you as a listener is great, and thank you so much for the contribution to the show. I appreciate you for acknowledging us, but allow us to acknowledge you. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. All right, Chris. So with that, let's get into today's show. Did you have anything to say about uh, Michelle before we go ahead and talk Raw, SmackDown, and Survivor Series War Games? As always, appreciate the comments. Good to hear from people. Love hearing from people, whether it's reviews, comments, tweets, whatever. Just love hearing back from everybody. And there will be more comments about Gunther's outfit <laughs> later on in this episode. I like it's just it's the feedback aspect of it, right? It's like obviously getting praises. It feels great. And we do the show for you. I mean, that's the reason we do it. It's we're not, we're, when we're taping the podcast, it feels like we're speaking into a void and just talking to each other. But we know how many people are listening. So getting that feedback usually positive, occasionally negative, uh, sometimes constructive. We love it. So um, whether it's comments like that or other comments that you guys give us, um, again, Twitter, at gettingovercast, email gettingoverpod at gmail.com. You can also leave comments on Spotify, on individual shows, but really the best way, and you can guarantee we're going to read it on the show, buymeacoffee.com slash gettingover. Sign up, become an official getting overhead. All right, let's get into the wrestling this week, the WWE professional wrestling this week. Uh, let's go ahead and start with that overview that we like to do about SmackDown and Raw. We'll get into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Of course, our WWE Survivor Series War Games Ultimate Preview and the last word. No main event today. I tried to create one. There wasn't really a compelling enough storyline where it made sense. And that kind of leads me into my take on SmackDown. It felt to me like it was another relatively dull show, certainly a dull crowd. I just think there's an overall lack of true star power on the show from the men's division. But there were even two surprise Raw appearances on SmackDown Friday, two of the biggest stars from Raw, and they just didn't draw the same reactions on Friday night that they did because both of them were on Raw on Monday night. I give Triple H credit for trying to use SmackDown recently to feature a lot of new people. That's what he's been doing over the last few weeks. And yeah, there are two immensely compelling storylines on the show right now, one involving the women, the other involving LWO, but neither of them involve a title. If you include the bloodline aspect into it, then that storyline and the damage control storyline, they both have heels dominating. And the top available star, LA Knight right now, is in a completely recycled program that he should have been out of after Crown Jewel. He lost the match, it's over. He's going back. He's almost in the Kevin Owens cycle of like fought the bloodline. They cheated, lost, going to keep fighting them, going to lose again. So very frustrating to me. Then you move over to Raw on Monday night, Chris. Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm sure you're pleased to hear this. That crowd was incredible. Maybe the best crowd of the year that was under 8,000 fans. They were loud and excited the whole time. They put every single person over. It certainly helped that Raw was way better than SmackDown once again. Every single match Monday night delivered to different levels. The shortest one was nine minutes. Think about how many times on this podcast I've complained that they'll do a three-minute match and a five-minute match and a two-minute match. And I said, why are you doing this? All you need to do is shove those together and give us one nine, 10-minute match. Well, that's pretty much what they did. There were six matches on the show, none shorter than nine, none longer than 19. It, it was so refreshing to me. Raw 
was somehow even better than it was last week, which I praised. I thought this week's Raw was one of the best shows of the year, one of the best in-ring wrestling shows of the year for a TV show, and best I can remember, Triple H's single most successful go-home show as a lead booker. Yes, I agree with that in terms of his best go-home show. The last two, I think, have been a lot better Absolutely. than they had been for a while. Uh, we'll get into the closing of Raw later on in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, Grand Rapids crowd was terrific. Um, people may not re- people who listen to this pod may not realize this, but that's the arena where Mark Henry did his uh, fake retirement speech. And I was in the let me guess who that. was there for that. that <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think people I don't think I've told that story before. Um, but yeah, that was cool to see that crowd was great. Smackdown, you're right. It's missing the star power. You look at what's over on Raw. You look at what's over on Smackdown. Raw's got Cody, Seth, Drew McIntyre, Judgment Day. Like there's just a lot going on there. Smackdown yeah. is missing that because you have. Roman Reigns, who's not always there. Logan Paul, who hasn't been there since winning the U.S. title. And it's basically just L.A. Knight. And and, and that's it. We'll say SmackDown ratings were up uh, yeah, quite a bit. They were. Um, which I think is a good sign for the focus on the women's war games match in opening and closing the show with that. So uh, that was a positive. But you're right. It's just missing the. Missing the star power on SmackDown. And and there are stars on the show. That's the thing. So Rey Mysterio is out injured, right? Bobby Lashley is a heel. So yeah, but he's he's not on the level. No, no, no I know. But hold on, hold on. Neither is Bobby Lashley. But, but no, but people love them. They love to cheer for them. And if they were in programs where they were in the main part of the program and p- people would get be getting up and excited to have them on their screen. I think you forget when Bobby Lashley was recently a babyface on Raw before he went over to SmackDown, before he took the time off, whatever. He was over like he was as over as almost any other babyface in the company. But point is, he's not only a heel. The Street Profits are the part of that group that's being pushed and featured right now. Lashley's in the background of that. AJ Styles, they haven't brought back yet, even though he's healthy. So it's L.A. Knight. He's standing there like looking around like Will Smith in uh, on the final show of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Like, where is everyone else? Like you have over on Raw, you have Cody, Sammy, Jay. Seth Rollins, Chad Gable, like a ton of these super over baby faces. And over on SmackDown right now, you got LA Knight and no one else is there for him to help. Like, like it's like you have the Avengers over one and then you have Ant-Man on the other show. That's all you got. So it, it's just very odd the way that SmackDown is being put together right now. Now that said, the women's division, they've made it way stronger than it was a month ago. And that certainly has somewhat to do with the infusion of Kyrie Sane, but it's also having all of the women on screen competing in a single singular storyline, which has been massively successful. But it's just, I watched that show and I'm, I'm, I find myself recently waiting for it to end. Whereas Raw, I looked up, it was 10.15. I was like, holy crap. I thought it was 9.30 at best. You know what I mean? Like the show flew by on Monday night. So right now there was a short period of time. I think it was a two or three week period where I thought SmackDown had gotten over Raw. It has completely flipped back in a significant way. I actually am enjoying Raw the last two weeks, at least twice as much as SmackDown, if not more. Me too. And I think it comes back to what we've talked about many times. Cody Rhodes, once again, being a featured part of the show. Yes. And that makes a difference. You're right. There were so many times where he was either not on the show, only showing up at the very end in the main event, or just didn't have a compelling storyline. Now he has a compelling storyline. And it makes all the difference. You're 100% right. He is over at a level far greater than everybody else. More than Kevin Owens, more than LA Knight, more than Seth Rollins. You can just, you can feel it when he's there. 
You can. And Owens is another person on SmackDown that I left out. He's involved in something with Austin Theory and Grayson Waller, and now he's kayfabe suspended. So that's another babyface who's not there on that show. So just a, another good example there. All right, we got a ton to talk about here uh, in the world of WWE. We're going to break down SmackDown and Raw, everything that did not directly have to do with war games. We're going to cover that in the good, the bad, and the ugly. We will, of course, then go to our 2023 WWE Survivor Series war games! ultimate preview after that. And I do need to be more consistent with that sound drop as this show uh, progresses. But Chris, before we get to that, let's go ahead and tackle the rest of what went down in WWE this week, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez, I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some Jordan. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in them articles that I read. You know, I was a little concerned when we initially replaced this intro with this song. Um, I think it's much better. Honestly, I think it's improved. I don't know about you. Agree. Yeah, I like it. All right, let's go ahead, break down everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw, other than things that directly have to do with Survivor Series. War games! And we will grade them good, bad, or ugly. So Bloodline opened the final quarter of SmackDown with Paul Heyman hosting an impromptu acknowledgement ceremony for Solo Sokoa after beating John Cena. Then he fake announced Cena and mocked him, saying farewell to his career. Heyman said all Cena had to do was acknowledge Roman Reigns, but instead he ruined his career because he isn't able to speak and will never return to WWE. LA Knight interrupted, saying Reigns is only still champion because of the Bloodline, no shit, and he's here to solve that problem. He promised each of them would fall until it's him and Reigns alone. Not sure if it's just me, but I struggled to care about this. Heyman was exceptional as always, and Knight was solid, but it just felt massively repetitive to me. Without Reigns, everyone seemed like a B-side. And Heyman, while he is truly great on the mic and completely commanded this segment, don't get it twisted. I'm not sure I can give this a positive grade for him alone when there's no compelling, I'm not saying that LA Knight isn't compelling as a babyface. I'm saying his angle here isn't compelling because he's already fought them and lost. And we know that if he fights them again, he's going to lose again. It felt like it was a filibuster to me. I'm actually going to say this was bad. Yeah, the promo segment bad because I just I don't know where it's going. Like you already fought Roman Reigns and lost. So now you're just dealing with the underlings and the underlings are not as interesting when it's just Solo and Jimmy. Like it's not even Jay. Jay was the right hand man, you know, so like it's uh, it's just missing. You know, L.A. Knight's doing the best he can. He's still really over. It's it's really not on him. It's just more of the story of what are we doing here? And also we don't have anything. We're not building anything to Survivor Series with LA Knight. So it's just kind of like, do we need to kind of care about it this at the moment? Let's also... I, I'm going to give it a bad as well, yeah. Let's also remember, he already fought them. He already beat Jimmy before. I'm pretty sure he already beat yeah. Solo Sokoa before. So now he's going to fight them and beat yep. them again and then lose to Reigns again? Like, that is just pure copy and paste. I mean, it's, it's as monotonous as something could be. So we'll go to the match, which was Knight against Jimmy Uso. Heyman and Sokoa left ringside after receiving a phone call from Reigns as the match began. Knight countered Jimmy into the BFT and got the win. That's my breakdown, honestly. This was a paint-by-numbers match with an expected result. Sokoa entered immediately with Knight forgetting Jimmy was still in the ring. He got blindsided and then ate a Samoan spike. Cody Rhodes stormed down out of nowhere to even the sides and end the show. We as viewers knew Cody was in attendance, 
because we saw him backstage earlier in the show during a women's segment. Rhodes looked like he was speaking with Nick Aldis backstage, and then he apologized to Aldis later for getting involved, and he left the arena on his own accord. It was still a bit confusing why he showed up, because they didn't tell us. We eventually found out Monday night, and we will talk about that later. I thought, hey, if he's talking to him and Knight's going to end up in war games, then that all makes sense. We'll discuss whether that actually happened. But the Cody element of it allowed this to break the barrier. I was on the edge. I'm going to give it a good overall. But I did not find individually Knight and Jimmy compelling whatsoever. I thought it was okay. I thought the match was fine. It's just like you said, we had seen it before and there wasn't any stakes really. Right. Um, Cody coming in for the save. I thought at the time too was, oh, maybe LA Knight's going to come join the War Games team. And they can also continue to plant the Cody bloodline seeds as we continue to get closer into WrestleMania season. Uh, I'm giving it a good. I'm also kind of wondering if LA Knight needs to change his finisher. I don't think the BFT just like looks great. It's just kind of a bit floppy. It's not. A, it doesn't look as impactful as some other finishers. I don't know. Just a thought. No, you're a thousand percent right. It looks terrible. It's a bad finisher. <laughs> it's really as simple as that. Uh, Sam- it, 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 it's like it's I don't know. It's all like for all the things that are like Stone Cold Steve Austin, this feels like one that is like Stone Cold Steve Austin. He even had the kick in there for a while that I don't think he does anymore. But it's like it's a less interesting version of the of uh, Mrs. Finisher Skull Crushing Finale. That one can look more impactful than this one does. That one takes it's, too long. It's like it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Yeah, Skull Crushing Finale takes too long to set up. BFT looks like it takes too much effort to do, whereas a stunner or a cutter yeah. is much simpler. And I'm quite sure he could come up with another move. I mean, his power slam wouldn't be it. It would have to just be something else. But yeah, BFT isn't it for me. It's it's not a, it's not a finishing move for of a world champion. And the idea is that at some right. point. In the next, you would hope, two years or so, LA Knight wins one of the world titles, but not with that move. I I completely agree with you. Uh, Santos Escobar came out in a white suit on SmackDown to the Legato Del Fantasma music, getting good heat immediately from the crowd. Not Dominic Mysterio level, but pretty much two thirds of that with some stupid what chance as well. Wild Del Toro and Zelina Vega all watched backstage as Santos said he once hoped fans would idolize him the way they idolized Ray, but Dominic was right the entire time. Big time heat. Escobar brought up the United States Championship situation, Ray taking over LWO, and then adding Carlito, then preferring Carlito to him, you know, being Escobar. Escobar hoped that Mysterio experienced pain like he did, wishing that he did even more damage to him and hoping that he did enough damage for Ray to retire. He had a couple fire lines here, including one, I think it was about the leg getting infected and then hopefully getting amputated. That actually made Michael Cole laugh unplanned, and he had to catch himself on commentary. So Zelina storms out, yelling and screaming. Santos yells back at her. She slaps him across the face. Then she cries, saying the only person that she hates more than Escobar is herself for trusting him. Wild and Del Toro come out. Escobar is wondering who they're going to side with, reminding that he made them, which is fact. He put out his fist for the legato bump, but they argued and Santos called them dead weight, telling them to leave. Then he blindsided them as they were walking out of the ring, only for Carlito to make the save. And of course, Santos dipped out. I have spent years on this podcast and the other podcast that I've had, the old ones, talking about Santos Escobar having... It's 
my Lord, did he deliver all of it right here. This is the most it that someone can be. You have it. You couldn't get rid of it. You couldn't sell it if you wanted to. You are it. Granted, perhaps it was not the best promo content-wise, but the delivery, the presence, the response, the acting with LWO, this was brilliant main event level stuff from Escobar. Extremely smart to align him with Dom's persona and get that added heat on him in the moment because people were already booing him for attacking Ray. And it is so easy to get heel heat just from attacking Ray. But to then say, hey, you know what? That person that you hate the most in this entire company, Dominic, he was right. That gets you the extra heat. That That's what something... That's something that really sets you apart from just being a heel who turned on Rey Mysterio. Getting Escobar back to the cartel boss gimmick, but with even more extreme heel edge, that would be perfection. It's a huge step up from last week when clearly the creative was rushed for Rey's surgery. We do have more to discuss here, but we're going to save that for the ultimate preview. Obviously, this was good. I am fully enthusiastic about Santos Escobar, and I truly hope that one way or another, Legato Del Fantasma reforms pretty soon. Yes, that was my question. Th- this was obviously a good. Santos Escobar finally looks like a star again. I have I have also said on this podcast that he looks like your future world champion um, Latino star. And he got real good heat. It, it, he did reference that. The only thing that was kind of missing was not calling Ray um, uh, a deadbeat dad. I was waiting for that. Like that's the <laughs> line kind of, that gets you the heat. He didn't say deadbeat dad. I think he could have added that one in there a little bit more. Uh, but this was all great. I was surprised uh, Legato didn't reunite there. Like I thought that was what was going to happen. We're going to have the LWO split. It makes sense. Him kind of turning on them was weird and surprising. So I don't know if that will change and they'll come back. Or, or what, but I was expecting it there in the moment. Um, so that was surprising. And the only other thing is, I wrote down in my notes here, it's a problem WWE's had more and more really since the Thunderdome era, and that is there's too much talking without microphones when you've got people in the ring. Or, or you know, and the idea is it's supposed to like convey, oh, they're having a real conversation right. now. This isn't meant for the show. But the if the crowd can't hear it, the crowd can't react to it. And I, I think you just everything that's said in the ring should be said into a microphone. Like that's the purpose of this whole thing. And, and, and so that was a little it could have gotten a little bit more kind of energy toward the end of that with that. But just in general, that's something I, I've thought about for a while. But so a great segment. I agree and disagree. I don't agree that they need to be holding up a microphone to their mouth and saying every single thing so that everyone can hear it. I do think WWE should have an alternative type of microphone that picks up those conversations at the same audio level we hear them at home and also broadcasts it into the arena, if that makes sense. So whether that's the cameraman holding a microphone or whether that's Escobar like holding the mic underneath them so it's far enough away where it's not like they're talking into it, but it's close enough where it can be picked up by the arena speakers, something does need to be accomplished so what you're saying happens. But I disagree that it needs to be a person holding a mic, speaking directly into it. That way, every single person can hear every single word. 
it's just that some things should not be missed. And you're right. The Zelina Vega part of this was immensely compelling. But the only people that got to hear that were us at home. And even us watching at home, it was so low that you really had to listen to hear what she was saying, as opposed to like it being super clear for everybody. To, to that point real quick, and I'm not saying this as a bit, but that Mark Henry, when he's back in the, the, <laughs> yeah. the fake retirement, he slams John Cena and he says without a microphone, I got a lot left in the tank in the arena. We could not hear that. Oh, we really? No, he said it. So I thought he had still retired. I didn't know until I was scrolling Twitter later during the show that he had said, I got a lot left in the tank. So that was a moment that we missed because we couldn't hear it in the crowd. Oh, that's interesting because I thought he screamed it so loud that everyone heard it. I mean, I was in the upper, it's not a big arena, but I was in the upper deck. So yeah, I'm sure everyone ringside heard it. You're right. But yeah, if you're upper deck, you certainly did not hear that. Yeah, I'm with you. We have a lot more to talk about with LWO, Legato del Fantasma, Escobar. We're going to save that for the WWE Survivor Series War Games! Ultimate preview coming in a little bit. Uh, Becky Lynch fought Zaya Lee on Raw. Zaya got a video package before the match, but it was nothing that special. Becky took a kick that knocked her out of the ring early. Zaya also hit one of those really cool falling spin kicks. I don't know what that's called, but it's awesome. Uh, Lynch hit a double underhook slam into an armbar. Zaya did a cool airplane spin, but Becky came back with the superplex. The crowd was hot as hell after that. Lee countered manhandle slam and hit a spinning heel kick, knocking Lynch outside again with an extra shove. Becky kind of sold that she might have been loopy. Then she ducked a subsequent kick from Zaya outside, running her directly into the post, and both ran into the ring for a double save at 9.9. Back inside, Becky ducked another roundhouse kick, catching Zaya following through with a manhandle slam for the win. It's to the point now that Chris... I believe Becky can do no wrong. She's taken it upon herself to elevate this entire freaking division. And week after week, you can't help but notice how many people are benefiting from it. This was the best match of Zia Lee's career, just like Becky recently gave Zoe Stark the best match of her career. Tiffany Stratton, the best match of her career. Lyra Valkyria, the best match of her career. Oh, and by the way, Trish freaking Stratus, the best match of her career. I'm not going to suggest Zaya is fully made from this one match, but the reactions that she helped draw proved that she has been at least legitimized as a notable competitor in this division. 3.75 stars B plus for the match and an obvious good. How do you like that? I liked it a lot, Bailey. I did. Yes, it was good. Like you said, I mean, Becky is, as we've said many times, one of and may end up being the greatest of all time. And that's in the ring. That's on the mic. That's everything. She can literally try to elevate an entire mid card of a division as she's doing right now. Um, I liked these. Ily getting the video package beforehand because she doesn't like speak or cut promos. We don't really get much like kind of connection with her as a villain, so to speak. So it was solid. Um, obviously they promoted what she's doing on NXT as well. So like, it was good. It, it was a good setup. I'm still on the fence about Zylee's long-term future, mm-hmm. but this was good. I will note just because I've mentioned it on the Thursday show. So Zaya got more time on NXT last week to like develop her character, tell a story. They did something called a warrior tea ceremony with Lyra. They're going to have an NXT women's title match on Tuesday. It, I don't know how long it was. It must have been like five, six, seven minute segment. She got more time there leading into that match than she 
pretty much has the rest of her career to build up herself as a character and have people understand who she is. My frustration with the Zaya booking is I love that they're featuring her, but they're doing something similar to what they did with Tegan. They're building her up and building her up. She's getting two matches, a big one against Becky Lynch and another one on NXT. And she's going to lose both of them. And then what? Now, Tegan had a soft landing. She's in the women's tag team division. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But regarding Zaya, it just kind of feels like, what are they going to do after she loses twice? And that was a criticism I had um, on our Thursday show last week. So I just wanted to bring it up here for anyone who didn't hear that. But the storyline that she has with Lyra in NXT, decently compelling. And I do seriously suggest uh, watching that show because that should be a pretty damn good match. Just wanted to put that out there. Let's keep going here. Uh, Street Profits fought Brawling Brutes and Pretty Deadly in a number one contendership for the undisputed tag team titles on SmackDown. The proper rules were used here. Uh, with triple threat, three people in the ring at every time. Ridge Holland hit a headlock swing into a DDT. The Brutes did 10 beats on the Profits. B-Fab approached Bobby Lashley, who was watching backstage. She wanted to be heard out. Butch accidentally caught Ridge with a bro kick. The Profits then tossed everyone outside and hit the revelation on Holland for the squeaky clean win. Lashley came out to celebrate with them on the stage after the bell. Holland ended up walking out on Butch a bit upset. This was good overall, but not the best that any of these teams have done. It was a bit clunky in parts. The Profits were the right winners and getting there without cheating, that was important. But now we have a heel-on-heel title feud coming up and Angelo Dawkins still looked like gold dust. I presume that the Brutes' angst is going to lead to Sheamus returning and getting them back together. That's another big baby face who's not on SmackDown right now, who's been injured and recovering. So I, I'm guessing Sheamus will come back, reunite them, and get them all on the same page. That's about all I got here. It was pretty basic. But as I said, a good segment overall. Yeah, it, it was fun. Um, I'm giving it a good... I, did, I have in my notes as well that the gloves are just not working for me on Dawkins. I don't get it. Yeah, it's weird. Um, if I have this right, I think I may have written this down. They did the correct version of a three-way tag match, right? They had all they had three people in the ring at once. I literally said that one minute ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, and that is the correct way to do it. And it actually comes at, well, something happens on Raw we'll get to where they didn't do that. Correct. Um, that is I correct. was, I kind of wanted, I wanted a, uh, I was kind of hoping Pretty Deadly would win here because I'm just I'm way into them more than I am the Street Profits right now. And if the heels were going to win, sure. But I guess we're still doing this Bobby Street Profits stuff. And all right, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, if you're going to have a heel team win this match but lose to Judgment Day, because I don't think Street Profits are going to beat Judgment Day, then it would have been better, perhaps, for Pretty Deadly to do that because you want to save the Street Profits so they can actually they can, win the titles. You know. Pretty deadly can take losses. It doesn't impact them. Right. That's like it's that's not their thing. Exactly. Yeah. Totally agree. Uh, we had Raquel Rodriguez against Nia Jax on Raw. Raquel quickly knocked Nia outside, splashed her off the ring apron to a pop. Nia came back with like a Samoan drop backwards into the ring post, made a really loud, nasty thud. Rodriguez's knees gave out as she was lifting Jax on her back. Raquel impressively hit a Harakarana and her corkscrew elbow. Rodriguez's back then gave out trying a Tahana bomb, so Jax did a full weight senton right onto her chest. But as she went for Annihilator, Rodriguez got under her, trying to do a power bomb out of the corner. Except Nia, at the last second, grabbed the top rope, and the weight was too much for Raquel to bear, so she fell sitting on her chest. Then she got right back up the ropes and hit Annihilator for the win. The level of hype, Chris, that the crowd got for the potential power bomb here was 
nuts. They wanted it so bad. And I got to be honest, we have been heavily critical, appropriately so, of Nia Jax on this podcast. But this match completely exceeded expectations. They had surprisingly strong chemistry together. Nia has improved to a degree. She's not about to go put on a technical banger, but she was much safer here than she used to be, especially on the moves around the ropes. And there is no doubt that even in defeat, she helped get Raquel over in a significant way. Seeing, oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. Seeing them succeed to this level gave me high hopes for both of them going forward. There was a concise storyline throughout, and I could definitely see us getting a rematch where Raquel becomes strong enough to take her down. I wouldn't mind seeing like training vignettes, Raquel in the gym, getting her upper body stronger, Mm -hmm. getting her back stronger, and then she comes in, gets the match with Nia, and does it. Another option is they can call back to this at the Royal Rumble in a couple months, where she like takes her off the top rope and throws her outside. That would hit massively. Some will complain about- That would be a lot. I know, I know. Some will complain about Rodriguez losing to Jax because we want Raquel to get pushed and we don't want Nia to get pushed, but she's not currently at the point in her character or her career where one loss like this hurts her. And when she eventually does hit that powerbomb and eventually does beat Nia Jax, the fans are going to come unglued for it. This was very good. Surprisingly good. Crowd was into you, like you said. That when they set up that powerbomb, I was like, oh man, are they really going to do this? They reinforced the ring post because the beef was flying out there, but they didn't reinforce Raquel Rodriguez's back. And she falls and loses. And all I could think about was, Raquel can't do the back pose entrance anymore. Right. This is the reason to stop doing that. Like she, <laughs> her, the, she, the, her whole gimmick is the back. Not her whole gimmick, but like a big part uh, of her it's gimmick pretty is the back. Part, yeah. <laughs> And the, and the back failed. So now we got to go. Now we got to do normal entrances and, and, you know, at least something other than that, which I never think works. So uh, but you're right. You can build off of this. I would love to see just her training and building up to the spot where she gets to do it. I think it'd be really cool. Um, shout out to both of them. Good match. That plays into the back being the gimmick. That's what I'm trying to say, though. You go, you do training mm-hmm. vignettes and she's doing. I wish I knew what it was called, but the move where you pull the bar down behind your neck you know, to strengthen your back yeah. and, and all that type of stuff. Um, you know, that's what you do. And you build her up and she gets more muscular and stronger. And you see her throwing around these big weights and maybe even uh, wrestling other larger women and throwing them around. And she prepares and gets ready for this big moment against Nia Jax. And she finally overcomes the monster. Like, it's a very simple storyline, but it's compelling. And fans would absolutely love it. Remember how they reacted when Bianca Belair, eventually it was like six times, but hit the KOD on Piper Niven, then Dewdrop previously, yeah. right? This is even bigger and better than that because it's freaking Nia, who they actually hate, and Raquel, who we they want us to actually love. And obviously they want us to love Bianca as well. But it, it's a perfect like sit, setup. It's a perfect setup for Raquel to get over, but they need to deliver. They need to land the plane on it. And you did mention it. <laughs> Reinforce the ring post. The beat's going to be flying tonight, gentlemen. They will need to do that for the rematch. No question about it. Johnny Gargano fought Ludwig Kaiser on Raw. Backstage, Kaiser was pissed at Giovanni Vinci for interfering last week to get on Gunther's good side. Vinci said his priority is what's best for Imperium, but Kaiser demanded he stay backstage, let him handle Gargano by himself. Kaiser kept taking him out of the air when Gargano left his feet, but Johnny came back with a really great slingshot spear and a tornado flatliner. Kaiser came back with a great discus lariat and a sick, I don't even, I don't even know what to call this move, a 270 slam. 
Like he was rolling in this match. He had a Death Valley driver. Vinci comes out against orders. Gargano took advantage with a kick and one final beat for a pretty damn huge pop when he got the win. Kaiser and Vinci later argued backstage with Gunther angry that he failed again before praising Vinci for doing what was right. He suggested he might have put the wrong person in charge, and he told both of them to sort it out between themselves. This was a straight-up excellent match. Vinci's appearance excused Kaiser's L, just like it excused Champa's L last week. Would have been even better for Gargano to win clean, and maybe even have Champa be the one who distracts, because they're baby faces, they have the advantage, they can prove to be smart as well. But that's a nitpick. Most important, this crowd was fully 100% invested in this match, both booing Kaiser and cheering Gargano. He even got Johnny wrestling chants. This was the best response that Johnny Gargano has gotten from a crowd since Elimination Chamber in February. And the backstage segment was a really smart continuation of Imperium's internal storyline as well. 3.75 stars B plus for the match and overall a definite good. When we talk about the crowd being good, this was a segment that came to mind mm-hmm. because they're chanting Johnny Wrestling and doing all these things after Gargano was getting no reaction for weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this one thing will suddenly start giving them reactions everywhere they go, but it was a good step in the right direction. Um, you know, it's a mid-card whatever storyline, but step forward, light good. Completely agree with you, Chris. Not made from it, no question, but a huge step in the right direction. And what we've been really asking the audience to do is to watch what's in front of them and buy into it. They got the opportunity to do it here. A perfect example of why the Grand Rapids crowd was so good on Monday night. And here's another major example of why they were so good. Uh, Chelsea Green and Piper Niven complained to Adam Pierce earlier in the day about having to share a locker room with non-champions. Natalia and Tegan Knox wanted a title shot. Then Caden Carter and Katana Chance wanted one. Indy Hartwell and Candice LeRae were next wanting to challenge. And then Maxine Dupree and Ivy Nile came up to Pierce seemingly to talk about something else, but he just assumed they wanted a title match as well. Pierce lost his shit. He made a fatal four-way number one contenders match, and it was just an immensely fun segment. It gave you an opportunity to see a little bit into everyone's personality. And while none of the teams, I would say, are fully developed as challengers, all of them have gotten time recently, which made putting them in this match make sense, even before we get to the match itself. I want to give this backstage segment a good. Uh, yeah, I mean, you kind of said it all there. I like good. It was interesting. It was enough to have me interested in the match they were going to do. So these were the boring rules, as you alluded to earlier. The wrong rules, only two people legal at a time instead of four. Uh, the champions were on commentary with Chelsea calling Michael Cole Matthew the entire time. Maxine had a surprising sequence, plus a second rope splash outside. The Casey's got some of their tandem moves in, but Katana ate a Mishinoku driver from Natty. Ivy based a double powerbomb out of the corner. Then Caden set up Tegan and Natty for a shoulder handstand vertical suplex splash. Yes, that's exactly what I said it was. Ivy broke a sharpshooter with a bulldog. Maxine did Otis's caterpillar and hit a suplex bridge for a near fall. Then she and Ivy did a double suplex and a double kip up. Finally, Tegan reversed a flying crossbody from Maxine, rolling through for the catch pinfall in 11 minutes. Let's just recap what we got here. An 11-minute women's tag team fatal four-way match in which everyone got over to a degree, including the champions who were excellent on commentary, not just Chelsea, Piper as well. My faults were this with this match were that Indy and Candice were kind of afterthoughts and neither of the most interesting teams, the KCs and then Maxine and Ivy, 
Neither of them won. But what impressed me is how Maxine has bought into the wrestling aspect of this job. She's clearly making a concerted effort to not just improve, but actually be a wrestler. It's almost like you took someone out of the WWE Divas era, but put them in 2023 and said, you're actually gonna learn how to wrestle like to a significant degree. I would love to know if Chad Gable or Akira Tozawa or anyone like that is actually training her while they're on the road together. Beyond that, I've said a million times that if you let the Casey's get ring time, they will 100% get over. Their tandem moveset is legitimately the best in the history of the WWE women's division. Forget that. Their tandem moveset is better than the same movesets of most men's tag teams. They have made it a significant part of their offense, and it shows. They are as real of a women's tag team as the division has ever had. I was pretty hyped that they got this much time, the women overall, and all got to show out in this way. I think you can tell. This was super fun, and it was an easy good. Easy good, for sure, like you said. Uh, Chelsea Green, hey now, was really good on commentary. Like, I, I like I again, I really like Chelsea and Piper as a team and wish they just got more time because every time they're on screen, I think they do a good job and make the most of it. So I'm glad they were involved in this. I love that Tegan and Natalia were wearing similar gear. Mm -hmm. That's so important to buying into a new tag team. The Casey's had great tag team moves, like you said, and uh, Ivy and, and Maxine were surprisingly like compelling in the match. And like you said, every week, Maxine seems to get better and better every time we see her. That's that's its own storyline with everything else going on. And the match was a ton of fun. Like it was just really good top to bottom. One thing that randomly jumped out that I wrote down when when Maxine was doing the caterpillar mm -hmm. before elbowing Tegan Knox, Tegan was like pointing to one of her arms or something. I don't know exactly mm. what she was doing there, but uh had no idea what it was. It just jumped out to me, but uh, really good stuff overall. And I, I liked, uh, I, I, I actually was fine with the winners. I, I, at first, I didn't think I would be, but the match made me believe in it. They were the most boring option, but they had Tegan get the fall instead of Natty, which saved it for me because they're putting Tegan over and using Natty to help her get over, which is important. Also, we've been yeah. doing this show long enough where... You know, if you drop a hey now, you need to pause. That way I have the opportunity to drop. It's gonna look good, but she's got me saying hey now. I mean, what are we doing here, right? We're supposed to have chemistry on this show. You gotta, you gotta be in, you gotta put me in position to help you succeed, is what I'm trying to say. One other thing coming out of this. And I've mentioned the last couple of shows how the women's division has improved under Triple H recently. But I think this raw was almost a line of demarcation for me, where I'm simply no longer worried about the division, at least for the foreseeable future. There were nearly 30 women featured on Raw. I didn't count the men, but I estimated it. It was around 40 to 42. There were three women's matches that got 33 minutes and three men's matches that got about 41 minutes. That's probably as equal as it's ever been on Raw. Like I said, this week for me, it was truly the first time where I can say I'm no longer concerned about the women getting featured, getting legitimate time, and even getting over, at least on Raw. And we gave Triple H a lot of criticism during his first year leading the creative charge in WWE, no question about it. But he also deserves praise because there is no question that the entire division is, and it's not just him, Becky Lynch is doing a great job, Bailey is doing a great job, helping all of, elevate all these women, like all of that needs to be said. 
But it does need to be pointed out that they are in a much, much better position going into Survivor Series War Games than certainly they were last year at this time. But forget even that. They're in a better position than they were going into WrestleMania and a better position than they were going into uh, SummerSlam as well. So I just felt that this was a good opportunity to say that. It's also like the sixth consecutive week that there have been like anywhere between 17 and 30 women featured on Raw. And that's another example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, that point where you say I'm no longer worried, that's a good way to put it. I don't agree with everything they're doing. And like you, like I said last week, I think it might be like almost too much right now. Mm. But uh, that's a much better problem than two-minute matches and, and not having enough going on. They'll, they'll, they'll figure it out. You're right. Better too much than not enough. And if you want your fans to care, you need to give them reasons to care. And the only way you're going to do that is by putting people on TV and developing storylines to teach you why you should like them and why you should cheer for them or against them. And that's what Triple H is succeeding in doing right now. I am the game, JR. There is nobody that eats, sleeps, or breathes this business more than me. All the men's tag teams were causing chaos backstage, saying they saw the women's segment earlier and wanted the same opportunity. Pierce said that they didn't have time to do it on Raw Monday, but he set tag team turmoil for next week. That way, all of them had a chance. Everyone loved that, obviously. There was also a funny part of this where Pierce pointed out that New Day was already a nine-time champion, so like, why did they need another chance? And Kofi Kingston's like, so what? How else are we supposed to become 12-time champions if you don't give us more chances? And then when it ended, Nick Aldis confronted Pierce for a conversation. There was also another Nikki Cross sighting in the background of the segment. This was really fun on its own, but what I particularly appreciated about it was the immense logic that they used. If none of these guys were scheduled to fight on Raw, of course they're watching the show backstage. And as tag teams, of course they would want the same opportunity to challenge for the titles that the women just got. So why wouldn't they demand the same thing? It was such a simple element that has been added to WWE, awareness of the show. That plus backstage being this action-filled, live, breathing environment, this was a paradigm of that. It was good. Yep, it was good. I liked that we also didn't get the kind of drawn out Tozawa dance. He just started the dance and Pierce is like, I'm out of here. And the camera just went with him. <laughs> like that was legitimately <laughs> funny that they still did the thing, but nobody was paying attention to them this time around. And uh, so, yeah, that all makes sense. And that was good. And I don't know like when on the show to talk about it. We get another Pierce all this con confrontation mm -hmm. doesn't go anywhere. We talked about it a few weeks ago when he thought, hey, maybe it was going to lead to a Survivor Series match. It then went a couple weeks with nothing. We're here. It's go home week. There's only one show left. We don't have a Survivor Series match on the card. Do you think we're going to get one? Or, or what's the point of these these GM confrontations? Then? Well, I think it's a point that you've try been trying to make here of it, why are they still calling the show Survivor Series War Games if they're not doing Survivor Series, right? And we didn't have it last year, and that was fine because they were doing something special with War Games. But I know that you, Chris, want a traditional Survivor Series match. I know that I want a traditional Survivor Series match. And I do think there is something to be said for the brand warfare aspect of this. Think about all the years where they just forced it, right? And you have everyone wearing the red shirts and the blue shirts, and it's stupid, and no one really cares. But what they've successfully done here is develop a feud between the GMs of the shows. What they've unsuccessfully done 
is tell us why that feud matters. And the expectation for me would have been that they did the segment with them earlier in the show. Later in the show, we see them arguing. And he said, you know what? Raw is better than SmackDown. All this is like, no, SmackDown's better than Raw. I'm then, and he's like one of them, Pierce, let's say, I'm going to pick my best five guys on Raw. I'm going to bring them to SmackDown on Friday night. You pick your best five, and we're going to have a Survivor Series match at Survivor Series. Like, that's all they needed to do, but they didn't do the second part of that. So it does kind of feel to me, Chris, like they might develop that traditional elimination match, whether it's for the main card, whether it's for the kickoff show, I don't know. But it does feel like we might get that Friday night on SmackDown. It's just my concern is... I want you promoting that for an entire week. That's an opportunity to have a couple people cross shows and have singles matches. There's a lot of things they could have done. You could also have wrestlers go up to Pierce and say, hey man, I want to be on the Raw team. And if we win, I want an Intercontinental title match. Or we, maybe it's Xavier Woods and Kofi Kingston. We want a tag team title match if our team helps win. Like There are so many different angles and storylines they could have done playing off of it that they didn't. So even if they do announce it, I'll be happy and there will be a storyline reason for it happening, but not necessarily a reason for the people who would be in the match to be in the match. Does that make sense? Yeah, to me, it's like either make it Survivor Series or make it War Games. I, I, I mean, it's 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 just so weird, especially when you're not doing the Survivor Series match anymore. And like the history of War Games goes back to like Fall Brawl in the early 90s. It was called Fall Brawl War Games. Mm-hmm. That used to be Clash of the Champions. They used to kind of, WCW, WWE used to have Thanksgiving battles and stuff like that. And Survivor Series is kind of built around that. So now that the Survivor Series has the war games now, they just were, were doing both. To, to me, the women's war games match should be a Survivor Series match, not a war games match. The men's can be the war games match. We'll get into the preview in a little bit. But yeah, I, like I miss the actual Survivor Series match because I think It's a lot of fun. There's a lot more opportunities to tell stories in that match Mm -hmm. than in the war games match. And uh, you can put stakes on it by saying soul survivors get title shots and stuff like that. Like, it's not that hard. I'm just I'm really surprised they've gone away from it. It feels like Triple H just loves, you know, the history of war games so much that he just it's he has it now and he (laughs) he's going to do whatever he wants with it at the expense of uh, Survivor Series, which lost a lot of luster over the years, and instead of bringing that back, he would rather have war games. Well, that's the thing. That's my frustration is they could successfully do both because they've made war games compelling, which is great. And even just teasing Aldis and Pierce, they've potentially made Survivor Series compelling again to do that match. They didn't do it last year. I was fine with it. But this year, it seemed like a perfect opportunity for them to do it. The other thing is, to your point, calling it Survivor Series War Games every single year without doing the Survivor Series aspect, it feels to me a little bit like, And that is going to be a horror show. (laughs) How do you like that? When they did Extreme Rules Horror Show, it's like the horror show didn't add anything to Extreme Rules. There wasn't even a horror show match. So it was a tag for tag's sake. And it almost feels like the opposite. They're calling it Survivor Series for tradition's sake, even though they're not doing Survivor Series anymore. So I do very much hope that they add a elimination match to the card. And if not in 2024, do they need to just call it WWE War Games? Maybe, you know, it's simpler. It rolls off the tongue easier. You know, it's less words I have to say when we're doing the podcast. (laughs) Go ahead. 
I I would rather they make Survivor Series, the Thanksgiving pay-per-view, and then a War Games match be like a Hell in a Cell match that you can break out every once in a while. I think that'd be better than making a War Games pay-per-view. That's just my uh, my preference. I like what they're currently doing. I like the idea of Survivor Series War Games. I just wish, wish both matches were on the show. Simple as that. I, yeah, you, that works. One or two War Games matches, one or two Survivor Series elimination matches, two title matches, you have a whole show. You're good to go. And I think there's enough people on this roster and enough compelling storylines, especially with Triple H holding the book, that you can accomplish that. Speaking of, by the way, matches that could get added to this show, do you think we might get something? Let's make believe there's not going to be an elimination match. Do you think it's possible we see like LA Knight solo Sokoa or something like announced Friday for War Games? It seems strange to me that Knight is not on this card. It's almost a glaring omission. It is extremely weird that LA Knight is not on this card. So I I, I had been wondering, I thought, hey, are they just going to do the Jimmy match at Survivor Series or something? And they didn't. And so maybe we do solo again. I, I, I don't really know. That's like we said at the beginning. Don't really know where they're going with that. But yeah. you've got to have LA Knight on the show in some form. Because if you have Sokoa off beating John Cena and Knight off beating Jimmy and then Knight beats Sokoa, that's a rematch with Roman Reigns. Crazy. Chad Gable fought Shinsuke Nakamura on Raw. Gable took the sliding German suplex later in the match and a flying knee as well. Gable came back with his awesome tilting slam, which has a name. I forget it. If anyone wants to remind me, I'd appreciate it. He also had a flying headbutt. Shinsuke avoided chaos theory. Gable countered Kinshasa with a German suplex, following with a dragon suplex. Shinsuke got double boots up on a moonsault, hit a full release suplex, but Gable countered Kinshasa into an ankle lock. Gable twice avoided an exposed turnbuckle that I must have missed when it actually got exposed, but that gave Shinsuke an opening to catch him in a pinning combination for the win. This was definitely the right finish for Nakamura to win, but do it in a semi-happenstance situation without hitting his finisher. Nice way to protect Gable while still delivering a clean finish. There was also a moment where Cole literally referred to Gable as Angle. He's gotten a few things wrong, Michael Cole recently, and he got a few things wrong during this match as well, like calling chaos theory when it wasn't chaos theory, but it's kind of tough to argue with accidentally calling Gable angle. I could totally see myself doing the same thing. (laughs) 3.5 stars B and this was good. Yeah, it was good. It was a step forward for what they're doing. I like that commentary is pointing out like, Hey, who was Nakamura talking about in all his promos? We still don't know. So like keeping, keeping that mystery going on regardless of the result, it was solid, like, like good. You know, it was fine. Well, regarding that, so Nakamura got a social media promo. He said he's tired of waiting. It's his opportunity. He's ready to fight. And I legitimately have no idea who he's talking about. I do not think it's CM Punk for anyone who's speculating that. Maybe he's talking about Cody Rhodes, but I don't know why he'd be looking for him because he's on TV weekly. He's right there. I literally looked (laughs) at the entire WWE roster. The only other name I could think of would be AJ Styles, but he's literally on the other show. And the only right. other name besides Styles I could think of would be Brock Lesnar. And trust me, Brock Lesnar, Shinsuke Nakamura, mwah, chef's kiss. I would love to see it. He's not going to come back until Royal Rumble season. That's two months away. Maybe there's a big surprise here. I'm going to guess he's talking about Cody. It makes sense for Cody to have another interim program before he really kicks into gear for the uh, you know uh, WWE Undisputed Universal Championship. I messed that up. Uh, It makes sense for him to beat Nakamura, who's beaten a ton of people, and then set himself up for the Royal Rumble season. But maybe it's a surprise. I'm not sure. Yeah, my thought was AJ Styles as well. Yeah, it's a different show. Whatever. I don't care. 
it, it, it would be fun. You can call back to their WrestleMania feud. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be into it. So we'll see. There was a promo package with Ivar and Valhalla challenging Bronson Reed. It was the best one of those that they've ever done. The background music was perfect. They were both super serious. The lighting was dark. It was just a really cool aesthetic. Multiple segments later, Reed directly responded to the promo saying he's going to expose that Ivar is not a real warrior and won't survive fighting him. I thought this was Bronson's best promo since returning to WWE. This gets a good simply because both delivered it extremely well. And the spacing of them was realistic as opposed to the weaved in and out that we've been getting with similar segments from another company. And on top of that, what are we getting this coming Monday? <laughs> Big meaty man slapping meat. <laughs> That's, That's what I want to see. And this gets a good. Yeah. And also I thought it was a different kind of promo for Ivar. Like they'd mm-hmm. done those Viking, you know, cosplaying promos in the back where they're like super into it, but he just, he like spoke differently this time. Uh, and it was interesting. So yeah, looking forward to the match. Another like light good. Nothing like wasn't amazing, but like no, it was yeah. fine. It nothing was special. Uh, Dragon Lee fought Axiom on SmackDown. Dragon told Aldis before the show that he wanted to avenge Ray, but instead Aldis told him he brought Axiom up from NXT so he could continue showing out. Obviously, the work was exceptional here. Pinpoint dropkick and snap German suplex from Axiom before Dragon followed with a brainbuster. Axiom countered a Liger bomb in the air with a Canadian destroyer for a false finish, plus a top rope Spanish fly for another. Dragon came back with a deadlift, one armed Liger bomb, following with a pump knee and Destino for the win. 3.75 stars B. Easy good as a feature for Dragon. He continues to make a name for himself on the roster. Also, a really strong debut for Axiom. We'll see if it's a call up. I don't know if it's going to be, but this was a lot of fun. Yeah, this kind of came out of nowhere. It was like, oh, Axiom. And they 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 sort of like kind of introduced who he was, could do more. I love the entrance, the 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 slow-mo mm-hmm. speed looking thing. It looks it looks just like Power Rangers. Like that's just it's what it makes me think of every single time. In like in a in a way that I like it. So I guess we're just you know, carving out 10 to 15 minutes every week on SmackDown for just a really fun Dragon League wrestling match. <laughs> I'm fine match with that. I have no problem with that whatsoever. It, <laughs> it, seemed, it seems to be working and yeah. it, it, it ends up standing out because of that. It, you know, it, almost in a way like, you know, when WCW would open up the show with a Cruiserweight match or something like that, like it mm-hmm. kind of just feels like that. And like, it's it's working. You know, a couple of weeks I was like, why are we doing Dragon League matches? But like, you know, if, if this is just what it's going to be, people seem to be getting into it. Was this your first time seeing Axiom? I had seen him in NXT a couple of times. Gotcha. All right. But it was your first time like on a bigger stage experiencing his entire yeah. gimmick type of deal. Gotcha. Yeah. And like, I, I, I like the gimmick. It is kind of corny. And like I said, like Power Rangers, but I don't mind it. I like that. All right. Uh, Cameron Grimes fought Grayson Waller. Austin Theory was on commentary. Grimes kicked out of a rolling flatliner, came back with a swing Uranagi. Waller dodged Caven and Theory ate a PK with Grimes getting dumped on his head while on the apron. Waller came back with a flip over inverted DDT for the win. I just don't know what this accomplished. Waller barely got to wrestle. Theory barely got to speak on commentary. Grimes almost seriously got hurt. This was bad. I thought it was a total waste of time. Yep. Waste of time is what I wrote down in my notes. Uh, and yeah, bad. And I la- just, no. n- nothing made sense. It, it felt like it was just a waste of time. And lastly, this wasn't a segment, but Road Dog wound up in the third commentary chair on SmackDown. I thought he was extremely solid the entire show. Some parts stood out, others he was a non-addition, but if I was grading his performance as like a bonus here, I would say good. 
yeah, like pretty solid. Like he knew he clearly like knew what he wanted to do in most segments in terms of trying to get somebody over or try to explain why somebody would do something. And like, that's ultimately the role. And yeah. I, I, he was, a, I don't, I assume he's done this on NXT before, but he was really solid. I don't remember if he, ha- I don't think he has, I'm not saying he's never done commentary, but nothing more than a, a replacement role like this that I can remember. Nothing permanent in any way. But don't forget this guy. I mean, he's, he, he was a magician on the mic back in the day, right? With New Age Outlaws. Like he mm-hmm. knows what to do. And it's exactly why Kevin Owens will be great at this. He just needs more experience actually actually doing it on commentary as opposed to with a mic in the ring. Um, but Road Dog succeeded in the ways that Owens did not in terms of his intonation, um, putting like that umph in his chest while he's speaking into the mic, not just kind of sitting in the background and kind of talking like this, but really getting into the match and sharing his thoughts with everyone else. And it made all the difference. That's the part that I think KO needs to learn. But nevertheless, in terms of substitute third man in the booth commentary guys, I think both of them delivered in consecutive weeks. So that is it from the rest of the week in the world of WWE, which brings us not to the main event. This is the main event. But rather today's main event, the 2023 WWE Survivor Series War Games Ultimate Preview. We have five matches on this card. We're going to break down every single one of them. We're also going to give you our predictions and at the end, a pre-show expectation grade for Survivor Series War Games. Let's kick off with what is definitely the lowest match on the card, Santos Escobar against Carlito. Let me start by saying, there is zero doubt in my mind that Escobar wins this match. So that's the prediction. What, yes. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what I wonder is whether the alignment that we saw on SmackDown holds true. In other words, Santos being the only heel out of LWO. My guess is we get Wild and Del Toro returning to Escobar's side, probably helping him win after a week to think about all their options, to consider what Escobar told them, Escobar attacking them, realizing almost that he's been their leader, he's the boss, and they need to fall in line and step in line with him. It makes too much sense to do Legato Del Fantasma against Ray, Carlito, and Dragon Lee. It's set up on the show. It's ready to go, especially since Dragon mentioned Santos on SmackDown. He wants revenge on him. The other option is bringing up Angel Garza and Umberto Carrillo from NXT and making them plus Escobar the new Legato. Escobar mentioned in his promo about his father not trusting the Mysterios, and they can easily say the Garzas felt the same way, so their two families are aligned against the Mysterios. You could have Dragon turn heel, he was an exceptional heel in Mexico, and get those four against Rey, Carlito, Wild, and Del Toro. My guess is we just get Legato reforming under Escobar, giving them a three-on-two advantage over Carlito and Dragon until Rey returns, probably around the start of 2024. But no matter who goes where, Santos wins this match. It's a total no-brainer. And I'm actually pretty excited for him to get a premium live event singles match, even if it's against Carlito. Yeah, it is weird to be like, Santos Escobar versus Carlito is on this card, but <laughs> LA Knight is not. Right. Um, I, I think your explanation there, like I said, Legato reforming makes sense. That's why I was surprised the way things played out on SmackDown. It would make sense to swerve it, do it back here, set that up for something else. Uh, yeah, Santos is winning this. All right, let's go ahead and move to the Intercontinental Championship. 
Gunther defending against The Miz on Raw. The Miz said the industry is all about respect, not just between the wrestlers, but between them and the fans. And Gunther's lack of respect bothered him. Gunther confirmed as much, reminding the ring was for fighting, not entertaining. Miz was proud to be a WWE superstar, achieving inside and outside the ring like all of his heroes. And he started name dropping them. Miz said they're all remembered because they're not one note robots like Gunther and he will be immortal like all of them. He said he'd beat respect into Gunther and everyone would find out whether he can survive, he being Gunther, without the title. Gunther said he wasn't facing a two-time Grand Slam champion and a future Hall of Famer on Saturday, but rather a little weirdo named Mike who got bullied in high school because he idolized wrestlers and does not belong in the ring or in the sport, but rather out in the crowd with all the other losers. Fans idiotically chanted USA, and Gunther called them out (laughs) for stupidly chanting three insignificant letters. Then he said Miz hasn't been bullied enough and started shoving him until eventually Miz attacked and got laid out. But Miz came back, gave him a mule kick and a skull crushing finale to stand tall. There is no doubt in my mind, Chris, this was meant to be a sink or swim moment for Gunther on the mic. Miz was torching him through the first half. And suddenly Gunther put on a cap and swam in that damn pool like he was Michael Phelps or Ryan Lochte. He turned on a dime and annihilated him. This is exactly what you do when you are considering someone for a world title run. Gunther went toe-to-toe with one of the best in the business on the mic and got the best of him. The call-out of the fans for the USA chant, that was the whipped cream and the cherry on top. This is a perfect storyline for these two. The bullying enhanced Miz's babyface appeal. Miz got over in the moment, showing he can actually stand a chance on Saturday. He also helped bring out a lot of character in Gunther that he just has not shown that despite having this record title run. If you cannot tell, I freaking loved this. This is why Miz is one of the greatest talkers in WWE history. And that doesn't mean he has iconic promos or amazing catchphrases. It means he creates interest in whoever is around him, whether that's a sidekick or whether that who that's who he's up against. Remember, the cheers for LA Knight went up a notch once he started going back and forth with the Miz. That's just why the Miz is so talented. Leaning into the bully aspect of this, just an easy, natural way to tell this story. Miz is always saying, I'm two-time Grand Slampion. I'm amazing. I'm amazing. But he's trying to be the underdog babyface here. So you say, that? no, that's not me. I'm the little kid who loved wrestling and looked up to being a superstar and entertaining while you're just the big, boring, mean wrestler. And like the end of that promo, like the part of this I'm going to remember is not any of the back and forth. It's the just like shoving him in the back with mm-hmm. his shoulder at the end. Yeah. Like, it's just like you could you could see that in high school. Like you can picture that happening in your high school growing up of just like bullying somebody that type of way. You're instantly being like, man, I want this guy to turn around and sock this guy in the face. Like that's just like just a natural way to do it. Gunther was great. Miz was great. This was a fantastic segment. I do have to say one thing about. The tailoring of Gunther's outfit here was a little (laughs) off. I think I figured it out. Okay, go ahead. I figured it out. Figured out why it looks weird to me. All right. One continues to be the the tapered pants with no socks in the shoes. Okay. 
call it a European thing, whatever. It just it doesn't look intimidating to me, which is what Gunther is trying to give off. And also when his suit was unbuttoned, it looked a lot better. It looked a lot more natural. I realized I think it's the buttoning up of the suit that just makes it look a little too formal to me for a pro wrestling ring. Like if you think about when Vince and all these other people, like it wasn't always buttoned up. So so that was part of it. Miz's suit was tailored a lot better. The collar fit, everything. You could tell between the two of them, Miz has better style. And he puts a lot into it. That worked. I also loved um, Miz when, when he's getting the, the big moment here. He does the big balls thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you caught that. I did, yeah. <laughs> He does the big balls pose and the crowd cheers for it. <laughs> and and this is I that, but that Chris real quick you, but this real quick the, that's how yeah. easily they've turned this guy into a baby face how successfully I should say that this thing that was used to <laughs> yeah. mock him that he has tiny balls this whole time now he's doing the big balls thing like he's in major league uh, I guess it was two and and the, they're cheering for him I mean think about that it's been what has it been a month and now yeah. they're cheering for that it's incredible and then there was a piece of audio right there that uh, we, we should have cut. We should have this as a drop later, which is Michael Cole saying, do it for all us weirdos, Miz. <laughs> that's not the, that's not the drop though. The drop is what Wade Barrett replied where he goes, speak for right. yourself. He goes, speak for yourself, Cole. That's the drop that we need to yeah. have. That way I love something. You don't like it. Then we can play it that way. Yeah. They were both. It was both really good. Yeah. Really hot segment. Like they've both done was, a great job. It was really great. Good. This segment and the Santos Escobar segment on SmackDown were Two of my favorite things we got in WWE and really two of the best like solo promo slash confrontation in ring segments, not involving main eventers that we've had in quite some time. It made Gunther look better. It made Miz look better. It got me more interested in the match, got the fans more behind Miz, massively successful. All of that said, Chris, Gunther's retaining the title. Yes, I agree. (laughs) I I do like the notion of Miz. I do like the the, the also storyline of Miz trying to like tie the record of most reigns of all time. Like it, it's adding prestige to the title by having two of the most notable IC champions of the modern era face each other. I agree with that. No question. I didn't comment on the clothing. So let me just briefly say that and we'll move on. The idea of let's call them like Capri cut pants or pants that show ankles with a suit. I have no problem with that. I think the reason why this one bothers you and bothers me a little bit less is because it almost feels like he's wearing a tux and that is not a look you would right. wear with a tux. It's one that you'd wear with a slightly more casual suit. So I think it's the wrong look for the type of suit he's wearing. I don't think it's a bad look on its own, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's just for a guy who's supposed to be kind of big, it's weird. It's more of a skinny guy type of look. I think. Yes, I do agree with that because his ankles look tiny and you're like, the rest of him's not tiny. So why does he have yeah. chicken legs all of a sudden? I that, that might be it too. That's a really good point. Uh, women's, you know, the getting over wrestling podcast where we talk professional wrestling and men's European fashion. You can only get that right here. Uh, women's world championship, Rhea Ripley defending against Zoe Stark on raw Stark got a video package that was definitely solid, but nothing really worth diving into later. She and Shayna Baszler were in the judgment day clubhouse with Ripley walking in pissed off. By the way, I love that it's a clubhouse and not a locker room. It just feels like it's you know, teenagers in high school, like the goth kids where they hang out after school, as opposed to like the blood, the bloodline, big locker room. That's only for Roman Reigns. It's a palace. It's a suite. It's just a totally different aesthetic. Uh, Stark reminded what she said about Ripley concentrating on everything else except for her. Even the fact that she left the title on a road case in the clubhouse 
and didn't take it with her. That's how she's not prioritizing the championship. Rhea said she'd normally kick her ass, but she actually respects the move and will beat her down Saturday instead. Zoe came across pretty damn cool here. And while it would have been nice for the biggest title match on the show to have more build, this fit perfectly with the storyline they've been telling to this point. And it's one that makes a lot of sense. I expect Stark to take Ripley all the way to her limit. Rhea eventually overcomes her and wins, but kind of gives her one of those looks like, yeah, I underestimated this. I didn't take this seriously enough. And hopefully, as women's champion, she takes her forthcoming matches more seriously than this one. So Ripley retains the title, but I did like very much what we got on Raw Monday night. Yeah, I was actually kind of the same prediction where it's, it has to be the kind of match where Rhea has to work a lot harder than she thinks she's going to have to work. Mm-hmm. I don't want this to be another one of those Natalia squashes like the first one or something like that. Um, one that makes Zoe look good coming out of it. Rhea looking like she needs to focus more. That's the story you want to tell. Rhea's going to win. All right, let's go ahead and move to the two War Games matches. And here we have an absolute ton to talk about for both of them. We'll start with women's war games. Bianca Belair, Charlotte Flair, Shotzi, and a partner to be determined against Damage Control. On SmackDown, Damage Control entered as a five-woman faction to open the show. Bailey had big-time mom vibes this entire time. They got a surprising amount of heat. Bailey was totally over the top, taking credit for recruiting Asuka, and went on bragging while the others kind of just stood there stoic, not really reacting to her, as they were basically telling the story that we expect from them, that they don't really buy into Bailey's shit anymore. They spoke in Japanese with Bailey not understanding and Dakota explaining that she still needed to officially induct Asuka into the group. Bailey got on a knee and offered a shirt and Asuka accepted. Dakota then shared that EO issued a war games challenge. Shotzi's tank rolled out empty with her attacking one on four off the ropes behind them. Belair and Flair then ran out, but the baby faces were easily outnumbered. This was mainly about showing us as viewers that Bailey was on the outside looking in from a decision-making standpoint. She's clearly the odd woman out of the group at this point. All the others are getting along. She doesn't really fit in. What I didn't like was Dakota talking for Io when again, she can speak English well enough. As can Kyrie Sane, as can Asuka. I'd have preferred Io speak directly before Dakota translated versus just having Kai relate things that she knows Io wants to be shared. I was surprised at the amount of legitimate heat they got to start the show. And while it could have been better, it was still a really entertaining beginning and a lot of storyline elements that were just the kickoff for what we got on SmackDown. Yeah, they were very much teased. I I like the teasing of Bailey potentially being on the outs of this group at some point and like the Japanese girls having their own conversation. uh, Don't worry about it, blah, blah, blah. Um, And I liked out of the opening that the three didn't come out of it with the advantage on the five, you know, sometimes all the faces attack, the heels run away. And then that's the end of the segment. Like they shouldn't have, they didn't have the numbers advantage. So I liked that the attack to open the show didn't actually work. Mm-hmm. And then it set up what we need to get at the end of the show. So later backstage, Belair told Shotzi, they need to be strategic, not impulsive. She told Charlotte, it's up to her to make contact with the person they discussed and Aldis came out saying he needs to know the fourth member before the show ends. When Aldis returned to his office, we saw Cody speaking with him in the background. That's what I mentioned earlier. We later saw Belair dap up Mia Yim and Zelina Vega backstage in separate segments, only for both of them to get laid out by damage control after commercial breaks. Given these developments, 
Belair told Flair they're out of options and she had to make that call. Charlotte later said she wasn't sure if the person she called would make it in time. The faces came out for the main event and accepted the challenge. Flair said she knows about turning on a best friend, but there's a thin line between love and hate, and there's only one person she wants on their side in a war. Damage Control entered with Bailey laughing at them, saying they wouldn't make it out of the building, and suddenly, Becky Lynch ran in from the crowd, and they all brawled. Flair somehow missed four women on her moonsault, leaving only her and Io standing. I believe Io did a moonsault off the other turnbuckle outside, but we didn't even get to see it because of camera work. Then there was a really long, awkward pause where they stared at each other, and then everyone just brawled again as the show ended. So pretty much they were short for time, and they had to make it up. In terms of the setup for this match with the backstage segments and the attacks, I appreciated immensely because last week we specifically mentioned Meechin and Zelina as obvious partners who are on SmackDown, but we noted neither of them really made sense for the match because they didn't have the star power. There's no problem going with the stronger star like Becky, especially on a big four show, but you needed to explain how they got down to Lynch, and they accomplished that. My gripe is we didn't get a moment where Lynch and Flair like looked at each other and either gave a death stare, shrugged, or had some reaction because we know they're on the outs with one another. They set up the whole angle as Charlotte being hesitant to reach out to Becky, yet we didn't get the payoff of that hesitancy. Now, it's possible that comes this Friday on the Go Home Show. It's possible it comes during the match on Saturday, but still, I'd have preferred a little bit of an inkling of that here. The only real down part of the entire storyline Friday was the final 30 seconds, which were just immensely strange, but it was a solid enough job to build this match. I just wish the crowd was as hot for the main event segment as they were for the open of the show. I really liked it. Two things kind of irked me. One, tell me if this is a logic gap. You you may, I, I may have missed it. You may have said I may have missed it. It may have happened on the show. Why was Becky in the area, in the building. Do we know? So we don't know why necessarily she was in the area, but it's fair to assume that the WWE people travel together and there's often raw people. I mean, I mean, in like, in, I mean, like in kayfabe. No, I understand. There's, there's often raw people yeah. who wrestle dark matches on those shows. We saw Cody was backstage. So it's possible she was in the area and got the phone call and she was able to make it. But I do agree because I don't know off the top of my head where SmackDown was, but I believe that Becky and Seth live in Iowa. I think even Davenport, Iowa, maybe. So I don't know how she would have gotten to I- from Iowa to wherever they were in that quick of a period of time. So it might be a logic gap. But if I was William Regal explaining the kayfabe, I would say she was in town for WWE in the hotel and they just called her and she got over there. Yeah, because Becky posted Becky posted a um, video sometime after of her getting calls. Uh, Oh, it was in it was in Evansville, Indiana. So like not not super far away. But anyway, because Becky posted a video of her getting a call saying no, got another call, said no, and finally picked it up. And then it was like a TikTok video or something like that. So um, I just I thought about that uh, as they're knocking off various people. It's like, why was Becky there? Whatever. So that's the other just, part. Just so was, everyone knows, that's a six-hour yeah. drive from Davenport, Iowa. If they are in Davenport, Iowa, maybe you could take a private jet. Maybe get there in forty-five <laughs> minutes, hour, hour fifteen, something like that. Possible. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a half a logic gap, I would say. Sure, that's fine. Also, but but my my bigger gripe was 
not playing Becky's music for the reveal. She just runs in from the crowd. Like those are the moments. And there's going to be another one we're about to talk about where if you have a surprise entrant or a surprise return, you do it via the music hits. Like imagine if they're waiting right there and then Becky's music hits, crowd roars and you get the reaction that we didn't get. It was just kind of her running into the crowd. Um, right. I, I just I feel like I'm just really surprised they did it the way they did. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And then on Raw, once Becky's match with Zaya ended, we mentioned that earlier, Damage Control walked through the crowd, taunting her from behind the barricade, basically ready to attack four on one. But the other faces quickly followed from behind out of the crowd, dumping them over, a brawl erupted. Pierce quickly ran down, directing traffic, pulling them apart. Then after they were all apart, they stood off with security between them and went at it a second time. The second phase of the brawl was even hotter than the first. There was no real additional build. Interesting. All of the faces were wearing leather, three in black, Shotzi in bright red. I guess she missed the memo. Either way, I'm sure some of you liked that more than others. It looked good, but she's got me saying, hey now. Now, I don't know that there's much to say about Raw, so I'm just going to go ahead and keep talking. I'm totally into damage control and more importantly, love the women that comprise it. And I would love it if they won this match. Shotzi is the perfect person to take the fall for the faces if need be. The problem is that it just feels like it would make so much more sense for the faces to win given the dominance of their top three women and the storyline implications of Bailey taking the fall for the heels and maybe even getting kicked out of the group that she created at War Games. It could have a very similar end to what we got in War Games last year in terms of having a big post-match story follow the action. Last year, obviously, with Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens in the bloodline. Bailey gets pinned, damage control lifts her up, hugs her telling her it's okay, only for EO to just kick her damn head off and excommunicate her from the group. My only reservation in that pick is that WWE could push this off. There is so much time between now and WrestleMania. Damage control could win here, no thanks to Bailey, and that could lead to more story being told over the next two months with the split coming at the end of December or in January. I'm sticking with the faces as winners, but I did want to provide both sides of the conversation regarding making a pick on this match. This is one of those where you kind of have to consider the two matches. Does they do heels win one and faces win the other? And it kind of impacts the decision. I'm going to say the faces win this one. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do think Becky takes the pin. For the, oh, for, for, wow. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ba ba I'm sorry. Bailey takes the pin. Oh, Bailey okay. takes the pin. Oh. For, for the reasons that you basically just laid out. That doesn't mean she's going to get turned on right away. And I'm sure we're, we may come out of that being like, oh, damage control lost again, blah, 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 blah. Right, but right. I, think they've, they've, I think they've clearly laid, planted the seeds of a split here with Bailey on the outs. And this would be a natural progression for that. I would kind of love it almost if Bailey got like kayfabe injured in the match and the other three end up dominating the women and like ultimately pin Shotzi and they realize that Bailey didn't factor into the decision. They don't really need her. It's just a different way to do mm -hmm. the same storyline and it lets damage control win. Asuka just joined. Kyrie Sane just returned to WWE. They really should be the side winning, but that's the exact reason why if Bailey's the one losing, it doesn't hurt Asuka. It doesn't hurt Kyrie. You know, it doesn't hurt EO the champion because Bailey was the weakest link goodbye. Like that all makes complete sense. So 
that's the prediction. We're on the same page there. I could see it going the other way. I kind of wish that I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope it does go the other way. But the prediction is the baby faces win. I do have a couple other quick elements I want to talk about before we get to the men's match. First, I'm strangely invested in the Becky Charlotte off-screen relationship. Like they're on the same team here. Okay. It seemed Friday night like they were more pleasant with each other and almost happy to be around one another compared to last time we saw them. Have they mended fences? As they would say, I want the tea on whether they've rekindled their friendship or at least become closer acquaintances who can work together again. Because there was a period of time where they simply could not. And that to me is just as compelling as what's actually happening on the television screen. I think it might be more compelling. Like when I saw that, I was like, I had the same thought. Have they mended fences? And if not, do they start, do they infight and that costs them this match? I think that's certainly a possibility that Becky and Charlotte, even though they're on different shows, could have a, a, a falling apart between the two of them. They can't coexist, as Michael Cole would say, and it ruins uh, ruins their team. But you're right. There was that Becky Charlotte match a couple of years ago. I don't remember exactly what pay-per-view it was, um, but it was one of the hottest women's matches we'd had in a minute because you knew the animosity was there and you knew it was real. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, how is this going to go? And I that is a story you still need to tell. And I really kind of hope it's not just yeah, we're cool now on screen and that's it because that was a really good story. There's also the other way, sorry to interrupt you. There's also the other way to play it where like they're in the match and there's a situation where they need to work together and they're hesitant at first, but then they do work together and they succeed and they like dap each other up or hug or something like that, right? And you see that fence actually get mended in front of you on TV. So they can do it both ways. And I'm just, I'm really excited to see if they do anything like that. We talk about Triple H hitting the little details, and you see it so often across Raw and SmackDown in all these. And we're going to talk about it in the men's storyline coming up, especially there's yep. numerous elements that they're telling with the men that call back to old little things and, and and put these add these little details that just enhance the entire product. And that would be something that would really enhance this women's match. I hope we get it um, around these huge baby face women. This is the second point I want to make. It's a quick one. I just hope Shotzi truly gets her breakout moment and does some wild shit because the two craziest people in this match are Shotzi and Eosky. And I really hope that they both have their moments, but Shotzi more than anyone else, because look, Eo is established, Asuka's established, Bailey's established, Kyrie less so, but she's been a multi-time champion and people know her. We know obviously Bianca Belair and Charlotte Flair and Becky Lynch are fully established. This is a huge opportunity for Shotzi. I really hope that they allow her to take advantage of it by her getting big time moments in this match. Lastly, Michin and Vega, they should be out for revenge after Survivor Series. They should be going after Kyrie and Asuka in particular in a feud. So I hope, and I'm pretty confident, that these backstage attacks don't just didn't just happen to write them off as being contenders to be involved in the match, but rather actually lead to a feud coming out of Survivor Series. Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, I mean, we haven't seen Meacham do much of anything in a while, so it, it's it's possible. I, I I guess it doesn't happen, but because it's on SmackDown, there's not a lot of time, but we'll see. All right, let's move over to the men's War Games match. Cody Rhodes, Seth Rollins, Sami Zayn, Jey Uso, and a fifth partner to be announced against Judgment Day and Drew McIntyre. So Raw started with McIntyre cold opening the show, 
saying he's not Dominic. He deserves a right to speak. The crowd was booing him. It was a really good start, actually. Drew said he's been consistent his whole career, and anyone who has turned on him isn't a real fan of his. McIntyre said he looked Jay in the eye before he dropped him last week, which was not a benefit afforded to Drew by Jay nor the bloodline, nor did Jay ever apologize for wronging him. McIntyre put himself alongside Rhodes, saying he hasn't gotten over the bloodline either, so why should he? That's a really good salient point. McIntyre made it clear he has not joined Judgment Day, but will be on their team because Rhea Ripley gave him the chance to fight Jay inside a cage. Jay interrupted, ready for a yeet down. That's something he's trying to do. But as he went to attack, Judgment Day came out of the crowd to get Drew's back. Rollins, Zayn, and Rhodes, Cody, by the way, in a full suit, looking like McGruff the crime dog, all joined him. But Pierce got between them all saying no one can fight until the advantage match. And if anyone throws a punch, their team automatically loses the advantage. He confirmed that McIntyre was with the heels, meaning the faces needed to find a partner before the end of the show, and the advantage match would be clean with no interference. It's incredible how all it takes for some wrestlers to legitimately regain momentum in their careers is a single promo. We discussed it happening with Escobar on SmackDown, and it was the exact same with McIntyre on Raw. Just an excellent, sensible promo with legitimate, inarguable justification for his actions. The best heels, just like the best villains in movies, are the ones where you understand and empathize or maybe even sympathize with their motivation, but you just disagree with their tactics. McIntyre was tremendous here. Everything that followed with Pierce laying down the law completely worked as well. This was the best opening to Raw in months. And part of that is because it's a heel opening the show and they he had just basically turned heel and they want you not to cheer him. If they had done the normal thing here, where you open the show with the music hits, then you do the video package during the entrance, and then you do the promo, people would cheer because it's still Drew McIntyre. So by opening with the cold open, so to speak, not doing the entrance, not having the crowd cheer him, that kind of nailed home the point that he's a heel here and that you boom. It's a really good promo, like you said. All the reasons he laid out made perfect sense, uh, as has been the case for a while now, and totally worked. Great stuff. So later backstage, Priest gave Ripley credit for adding McIntyre, saying it was good business, but that she should have cleared it with him, given he's the leader of the men's war games team. Rhea said there wasn't really time, but admitted that they should have talked it out. Priest wanted to be in the advantage match. Ripley reminded him that he just said they should discuss all decisions together. McIntyre came in later. They agreed neither likes the other. They did a whole calmer than you are bit with Priest eventually demanding McIntyre get them the advantage. Jay later wanted to fight, but Seth tried to convince him not to do it because Drew might completely take him out and they needed him for the match. Jay insisted. Seth relented. They also discussed the fifth member. Cody related that Aldis told him SmackDown guys were available for him to choose if they needed. That gave Sammy a couple of ideas, but Cody said he wanted to call a friend first before they went that route. That added context, not only for why Rhodes was on SmackDown talking to Aldis, but why the women were able to choose Lynch. Because clearly you could choose mm-hmm. people from the other side. Rollins gave Jay a pep talk, stressing the importance of the situation. Jay was hype, yelling yeet over and over again, but Seth just stared at him until he calmed down and it sunk in the gravity of the situation. Then they got him hyped up later, which was slightly inconsistent. McIntyre and Priest got heated again backstage with Ripley basically just telling him, go get the job done. Seth and Sammy then informed Cody they had no luck in finding a fifth with Rhodes replying not to worry because 
he's in. All of this was a really smart way to extend the storyline through the entire show. It also showed the different dynamics, not just of the groups, but the individual relationships. I'm not here to debate like WWE and AEW, but consider how these teams have been built compared to what's done for like Blood and Guts or Stadium Stampede or some of those where people just say, this person's gonna be on my team and that's it. It's far more interesting when you give storyline reasons and background storyline to enhance characters and their relationship that then plays into how they work together or don't in the match itself. Yeah, in both SmackDown and Raw, they just told a story from the beginning to the end of who the extra member would be. Like there, there was a journey you went on to get there. It didn't, it didn't just happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when, when, when that started, I was thinking again, hey, maybe this is LA Knight, you know, what they were talking about, what's he going to do on the show? Um, the, the interpersonal dynamics between all of them worked. I like McIntyre with Judgment Day and just kind of a new person that Priest kind of has to talk to, but not someone he can really talk down to like everybody else in Judgment Day. He's got to handle that. And Seth Rollins being serious for a, a good amount of time, which mm-hmm. is what we've wanted. So it all set up well. I didn't, uh, I don't look for spoilers and stuff. So I didn't quite know what was going to happen, who that fifth person was going to be. I thought I was leaning LA Knight, but I wasn't sure. So it was a good thing to keep you interested as the show played out. Now, before we get to Jay against Drew in the advantage match, I forgot to mention this for the women, but the women are not going to have an advantage match. I don't know if you saw what's happening there. Yes. But fans are able to vote for which team they want to have the advantage in war games in a online poll sponsored by Ruffles, which clearly means this match is going to be sponsored by Ruffles. Now, let me say two things. Number one, actually three things. Number one, I actually like Ruffles, okay? Uh, but number number yeah. two, I sincerely hope they don't do like a thumbtack spot with a bag of crushed up Ruffles in the match. Please do not do that. Uh, no, I don't think they will. I hope they don't. Number three, I understand the situation. Uh, it's a sponsored match. This was part of what they sold. So they're doing a poll and people will vote and the baby faces will win, which is worse, by the way, because the heels having the advantage in war games is what's best. But I can't help but be bothered by it because they would never do it for the men's match. You know, they would never just give the advantage of the men's match to whichever team won an online poll. I wish they had come up with something different that they people could have voted on. I'm not going to be overly angry because we just spent a lot of time on this show addressing how the women's division has been booked a lot better. But I do. I wish they didn't do this. I do wish they didn't do it. I don't like when the sponsorship impacts the story. And that's the problem. If you want to do a ruffle sponsored match, if you want to do a Mountain Dew uh, uh, black glow in the dark match, if you want to do cinnamon toast crunch around the ring, like that's that's one thing. But like fans vote on the advantage. It makes no sense because the story you are telling us is we want the fa- the faces to have the advantage. Right. And I imagine that's what they expected and maybe what they originally planned because of what happens with the men. Mm-hmm. And so they just figured, hey, this is a fun way to do it. We'll skip that step and throw a sponsorship on it. I just I don't like when it impacts the story like that. Like, why? Why yeah. is that happening? What is the reaction of everybody involved? We didn't get that either, right? They just announced it in between segments on Raw. So like, it's a big deal to have an advantage. It's the story of the match, you know, for the most part. It is. And for for that to for that to just come up as, oh, by the way, 
you can vote on it. And thanks to Ruffles, it's like what? Man? Like, like Bailey dude, should be throwing a fit. Like, like what are you guys doing? You're letting the yeah. dumb. You're letting the dumb fans vote for this. Of course they're going to vote for Bianca and, and Becky. Like like she should have been pissed off. And by the way, if they at least worked it into the angle a little bit, then it would have, you know, created more promotion for Ruffles. You know what I mean? Like it would have been even better for them to do it this way. I would have done it. Hey, you want to do a poll? Weapon of choice. We're going to add a weapon to this match. It's a heated blood feud. Tables, ladders, or chairs, something like that. And the fans get to vote. They would vote for tables. And there you go. You know what I mean? Like, just do something like that. Not the advantage, not the entire storyline behind the match. Here's what you do. You have all this say, look, we can't have the 10 of you in the same room together at all because you guys just keep breaking out into brawls. Therefore, we're going to have the fans vote on it. And Ruffles is sponsoring it. And Bailey throws a fit. Yes. And blah, blah, blah. Like, there you go. Like there's a kayfabe reason as to why you're doing a fan vote. We should be consultants. We got to get paid for consultancy on this pro- on this product. I swear <laughs> to God. All right, let's go back to the men's advantage match. Jay against Drew. So McIntyre completely dominated this match offensively. He just destroyed Jay inside and out, including yeeting him over the announce table. Jay countered Claymore with a jumping super kick. McIntyre came back with future shock DDT for a sudden unexpected finish. I was shocked that this ended the match because Claymore is the established finisher and Future Shock DDT has not been reestablished in that way, even though it was his heel finisher in NXT before he returned to the main roster. To me, it made Jay seem somewhat weak in the moment, even though McIntyre bludgeoned him all match and led up to that point, especially because McIntyre has been wanting to beat the shit out of Jay for so long and they didn't save the match for after war games. They ran it before with a decisive finish that did not use his established finisher. Did you feel the same way as I did in that regard? My thought wasn't so much the finisher as much as, all right, Drew got what he wanted now. What, like, what is his motivation in war games now? You know, like, Mm. he just, he really hated Jay. He didn't forgive him, so he beat the shit out of him. Like, he seems like he's, I'm good now. Like, right, Isn't, isn't that, isn't that what he wanted? I was really surprised they made this the advantage match for that yeah. reason, because I thought they were going to keep Drew and Jay away from each other. Again, perhaps for something coming out of war games. Instead, you just beat him clean. <laughs> you know, like Drew was really upset about him. He made some good points and he beat him. Like that's kind of the end of the story. Yeah, I feel like it felt like it should have been Priest and Jay or it should have been Sammy and Drew most likely in that spot. And it was very weird that they did it that way. So I was a little bothered by that, but it was really a small note on what was otherwise a very strong story across Raw. So Ripley directed Mm -hmm. McIntyre to continue beating Jay after the bell. Jay was about to get the upper hand with a chair when Judgment Day attacked, leading the faces out with chairs for a five-on-four brawl. The faces laid out the heels with the chairs, and fans immediately started chanting, Randy. Cody said he was glad the heels got the advantage and got McIntyre on their side because they found a fifth member He has a legacy with huge pop. Cody said they're not prey because they got the apex predator on their side. Loud chance. Then he said Judgment Day wasn't hearing voices inside their head. They're right. You see, there was no name drop as Raw went off the air. Just the implication. Dude, think about it. Cody's in the ring, doesn't want some dude he barely knows. What does he see? Nothing but Judgment Day. Ah, who do I choose? What am I going to do? I really hope some of you got that. Anyway, 
No name drop of Randy. I didn't Orton. get it. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't get that. But I just said uh, it's a reference to. Yeah. Al- it's a reference to Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, it's oh, one okay. of the fu- I, I, I one of the funniest show, scenes in the history of the sitcom, or pretty much any sitcom, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, no name drop of Randy Orton as Raw went off the air, leaving it a direct tease, as much as one could possibly deliver. But WWE, as soon as Raw went off the air. Just went ahead and wrote his name on social media, showed his picture, said Randy Orton is back. Kind of wish they left it unsaid, even though it was blatantly obvious. I was initially bothered that WWE was going to ruin the Orton return on Raw five days early just to stave off the expectations of CM Punk. But they executed this as well as possible. The heels getting the advantage is what's always best for war games. And now we know there's basically going to be this dream team of baby faces going against these ultra heels. It was extremely hot as an end to an extremely hot episode. As we talked about pretty much this entire show, Triple H has figured out how to crush these go home shows recently. And I'm very curious to see what they do through the end of the week leading into war games. And we will discuss that further in a moment. So Cody's talking and I'm thinking Ellen Knight's music might hit or something like that. And then he says legacy and I go, Oh no. And then I, and then I made a joke to myself. I said, Oh, it's Ted DiBiase Jr. Ha ha ha. Mm. (laughs) And then, and then he says all the other stuff and I'm like, man, like this is, this is it. The Randy Orton return after being out for what more than a year at this point. And it's coming via Cody announcement for a match coming up. I'm like, man, it's just like the Becky thing, but even more so where it's like, who who is the last person we're going through war games and the person's not in the cage who is it who is it just like when kevin owens showed up at that one war games match randy orton's music hits crowd goes berserk it's huge moment but randy orton's back oh my god blah 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 like that's the moment you're trying to build for that's what wrestling is about and i can't believe they just did it like this and all i could think about was this had to be the way as you said to inform people it's not going to be cm punk Mm -hmm. that's the only reason i can think of it because otherwise everybody would be speculating even if you follow the dirt sheets and you know it's randy orton but you would have people in that crowd chanting cm punk cm punk you know it's coming cm punk oh randy orton like it felt like the way to get ahead of that and maybe maybe you had to do it for that like i i understand that Mm -hmm. but man this is like this is the big randy orton moment and look when he, I don't know when he's going to show up exactly in the match. Like, will he be in the cage or not? It'll still be a huge reaction. And maybe you can look back on it and pretend this whole thing didn't happen. But man, I was just like, ah, they gave it away. I didn't I know. know who it was going to be. And I, and, and I learned it like that. I was like, oh, it was tough. Like, it's one thing to speculate, you know, WrestleMania 33, pretty much everyone knew, or a lot of people knew the Hardy boys were coming back, but the way they did that. Segment. I didn't. I didn't. And oh, I loved it. I, did, I was in the. Well, I was there and I got an inkling from I was at an indie show and I heard it. But but so mm-hmm. I kind of knew, but it still hit like crack when it happened. Right. And Cody Rhodes, when he debuted in WWE, returned to WWE mm-hmm. at, at WrestleMania, pretty much everyone knew it was going to happen. But you're like, I really can't believe it until I actually see it. And then his music hit yep. like crack. And Randy Orton, I have said this so many times on every podcast I've ever been on. His popularity with WWE fans is immensely underrated. People freaking love Randy Orton. And that music hitting, even if you're somewhat expecting it, but hitting 
in the moment, there is nothing that can replicate that feel. I think WWE has a way to still get that. I will talk about it a little bit later. We have a couple more topics to cover, but I do agree with you where it's like, I wish they didn't have to give it away, but I 100% understand why they did. Yes. Also, real quick, when he did say that, incredible job by production, camera shot on Jey Uso, like looking back, nervous, so, because. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, well, that's we have a great yeah. question that came in, and I'll let you talk about it first. Yeah, because that. Because I like I had to remember, like, wait, what was the last time we saw Randy and what happened? Oh, yeah, the bloodline, blah, blah, blah. Like Jey Uso being like, oh, an another one of these people who's pissed off at me is coming back. I've had to deal with Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, Drew McIntyre, all these people that are mad at me. Now Randy Orton's come back. Oh, I got to answer to him, too. Now, all these sins that he's having to atone for. And here comes another one. And you, this is a great camera shot. Great reaction by Jay. Yeah, so I was going to give some credit to Justin Downs at Banana Pancakes with an extra N and no E. He said, uh, the character work of Jay continues to be spot on. The look that he gave when Cody was talking about and working up to saying Randy as the fifth member was a whole story in itself. It's simple things like that that Jay has just become a top tier performer at. And I agree with you and I agree with him. No doubt about it. That side eye, which was exactly that monkey meme, which I tweeted out at Getting Overcast on Twitter, um, it was perfect. Jay being shocked to learn it's another guy who has every reason to want to absolutely destroy him is perfect. And he carried himself expertly there. Let's not forget to the point that you just made. Orton's last match was the tag team title unification that RK Bro lost. And then after it was over, the Usos completely took him out to write him off due to the back injury. That's a great callback in the moment. And this is one of the most unique babyface turns I can remember with Jay. He's a good guy, but he has like a half dozen people who simply do not believe him and cannot trust him, all to different levels of doubt and ultimately different levels of acceptance. I'm sure something like this has happened before, but I don't remember it ever being this nuanced. And it would actually be cool for the faces to win and Orton to like RKO Jay at the end and then shrug and then lift him back up or something like that. But be like, you deserve that. You know, you deserve that. Lift him back up and they all walk out together. You know what I mean? That That's one of my thoughts in terms of how this could play out. If the faces are going to win, it has to end like that. It has to end with Randy RKOing Jay and maybe, maybe Cody too or, or something. You mm -hmm. know, like that is going to have to be addressed during the match, after the match, coming out of the match. Yes, I think that is a possibility. If the faces win, you have to do that. Like, I have a feeling Jay is probably going to start war games in the ring, but Jay and Randy being locked in the cage together, the shark cage or whatever they call it, that would be pretty cool. Just seeing like them interacting, standing on opposite corners as far from each other as possible, you know, all that type of stuff. Now, regarding the choice of Orton, it was really smart how WWE first eliminated other options, namely Kevin Owens, who was suspended and therefore unavailable to choose, even though he would have made by far the most sense given the long-term storyline. Plus, the way Cody explained that he could choose someone from SmackDown if he wanted to, gave credence, as I mentioned earlier, to Becky from Raw being in the SmackDown match. But then he explained he had a better idea than someone from SmackDown, which gave cover for not choosing LA Knight. I thought it was important to point out how much thought they put into that to make sure there were not logic holes with people second guessing the kayfabe decision. But they also did a good job of keeping it a mystery. 
which was what you wanted up until when they revealed it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. The real surprise for me in choosing Orton, and I mentioned this last week, is he's returning from an 18-month absence due to a severe back injury. And his first match returning is coming inside war games. Like he's obviously going to be protected and he's a veteran. He knows what to do and what not to do. So there's not a real risk of anything. It just seems like the worst possible option for someone coming off back surgery to return in the most brutal match that WWE has these days. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. But also like, you know, as the person who's saying they need to bring back the Survivor Series match, the war games match in both cases, gives you the option of uh, or the ability to not pin a bunch of people. That's the thing with Survivor Series matches is everybody gets pinned at some point. So Mm -hmm. in this situation, Randy won't get pinned. But yeah, they're usually pretty violent. They're not AEW blood and guts violent, but it's a lot. Yeah, they still bump their asses off. There's no question. I also got a DM from A uh, named Reckless Latin. Do you think we'll get Randy on Friday or are they saving him from Saturday? This was a great question. So normally, I would say they would save him until War Games for a monster pop on the PLE. However, SmackDown has sold 15,000 tickets in Rosemont outside of Chicago, and they opened 2,000 more, which they are expecting to sell. So there could be 17,000 people for this true go-home SmackDown the day after Thanksgiving, coming out of the Black Friday NFL game, going up against college football rivalry weekend. I think you absolutely have to put Orton on SmackDown. You do a brawl, heels get up on the faces, Orton's entrance hits, he makes an insane save, ridiculous pop, nuclear hot. We talked about how immensely over Orton continues to be late in his career. I promise you, if they do the pop Friday when it's unexpected, as opposed to Saturday when most people are thinking they'll see him, it'll be one of the biggest pops of the year in WWE. So to answer your question, I do think we see him Friday, but I won't be upset if they save him until Saturday. That would make total sense. That might be a good media war this year, like pop of the year. We kind of have to. We do. It's all it's end of November. We got to get into that. Yeah. Holy shit. That um, that's a good point about SmackDown. I, I don't want it to be it, like if I if I could pick it the way I wanted it. He's not he's not on SmackDown. He's not in the cage. Cody's not sure if he's in the building or not. He don't know if he's going to show up. And then the very last person to, to come out is Randy Orton. There's like a delay. Music. There's hits. like 20 seconds where yeah, no one comes he, out. Yeah. Yeah, you do. His first appearance is when he's walking out for the match. To me, that's what I would do. That would be the biggest pop. But you make a very good case for SmackDown, the business perspective, tickets, all that stuff. Probably going to be what happens. Be a good go home selling point. But in terms of me just wanting the moment, I want that moment to be the match. All right. That is our full breakdown. So go ahead, Chris. What is your prediction for the men's War Games match? The pick is the heels. The Judgment Day gets the win. Um, Perhaps Jay taking the pin. I think in this case, you know, Judgment Day is so united and that you add Drew McIntyre on top of that. When you have these, generally when you have a team versus a group of people match, 
you feel like the team should win. I know we said, I know we picked the opposite for the women's, mm -hmm. but this is a situation where I think Judgment Day should get the win. There's no reason not to. Um, Cody needs a loss or two, kind of as we get into to WrestleMania season, kind of knock him down a couple pegs in terms of just the John Cena of it all. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and maybe he loses and there's a reason for people to be mad at Jay again or something. I, I don't know. Again, I think Drew beating Jay on Raw kind of took some oomph out of that part of it, but I'm still going with the heels. So who are you saying takes the fall then? Jay. Jay takes the fall. And who gets the pin? Priest. So I do agree that if the heels win, Priest should be the one to get the fall. But I don't agree with your pick. I have the baby faces winning this match for a few reasons. I see no reason for Rollins, uh, Cody, nor Orton to lose. And yeah, Jay could take the fall again. That would be totally fine. Look at the other side. They have JD McDonough and Dominic Mysterio. Like two very easy people to pin. I could fully see JD McDonough flying off the top of the cage or the top rope and Orton hitting an RKO through a table. And that's how the match ends. I, I, I think Judgment Day doesn't get hurt by a loss, uh, especially if it's Dominic actually. Like, you know, because JD, they would criticize for losing. Dominic's already part of the group. So uh, shit happens, you know, and you move on. I think they want to close this with a big babyface moment to counter the way Survivor Series ended last year with the bloodline winning, Sami Zayn fully turning on Kevin Owens, that big time moment that they had. I do agree that having babyfaces winning both war games would be a little bit odd. And maybe that means I should change my women's prediction and have damage control win. But if you look at the rest of the card, you have Rhea Ripley, you have Gunther, and you have Santos Escobar. Those are three heels winning the other matches. And if they add another, yeah. it would depend what that match is. We don't have that prediction yet. So I think they're going to set up the lower card or, you know, because obviously a War Games is going to start and end the show. So women start, baby faces win, then heel, 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 and then baby faces win to close the show. That's my prediction for the men's War Games match. I did have one more item before we get to our grades, though. Uh, Damian Priest and the Money in the Bank briefcase. I do wish they would mention that it's suspended during the match or perhaps mm. the entire day, because that could erase a little bit of a plot hole. You would think once this match ends, especially if Judgment Day wins, which is your prediction, that they could hold all the baby faces down and Priest could get a chair, yeah. bash Rollins over the head, cash in Money in the Bank, and win the title. But as I've said before, I don't really think Priest cashes in until they drop the tag team titles. So that's why I think they need to get ahead of it and either announce that the briefcase is suspended or have commentary talk about it. They got to do something before this show begins or before the match begins. Yep, that's a really good point. You, you, you got to address that because it's something you keep thinking about. You're going to have Seth and Priest in the ring together. Like, yes, that, that needs to be addressed. All right. So that is our breakdown of everything going down at WWE Survivor Series. Which leaves us with our pre-show expectation grades. As always, you, the listeners, will be able to vote by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We will post the poll about one hour before Survivor Series games. begins. But at this point, Chris, we are giving our pre-show expectation grades because this indeed is... This is my show! My show! I did not set that up properly. Nevertheless, you always get to go first. What is your expectation grade for... WWE Survivor Series. War Games! I'm going to go 
A minus, and it's a low A minus, just barely above a B plus. Um, I, I, I'm really excited for the men's war games match. Really looking forward to it. The rest of it, yeah, okay. Like I think the women's match will be fun, but I'm not like super looking forward to it. Gunther versus Miz, I'm looking forward to, but probably won't be a great match. I think part of this is because I don't think war games matches are like they're generally not great matches. You know, like I said, there's not much of a story you tell. It's just the heels with the advantage or whoever has the advantage generally kind of beating down the other team for a while. And then you get to the end and it's one pin. War games matches, at least in the modern era, are really about the spots. Someone jumping off the cage, doing something weird. Um, That's why I still think the women's match should be a Survivor Series match, not a war games match. If it was, I think my interest would be a little bit higher. So, but I'm going to go a minus. So I'm surprised that I'm not surprised at the grade because my grade is exactly the same. Pre-show expectation is an A minus. I think this is going to be a great show. I'm surprised at your analysis of it because to give an A minus for a show where you're not really anticipating four or five matches is just a little bit odd. I would say for me, I'm heavily anticipating both War Games matches. Rhea Ripley, Zoe Stark, I think is going to surprise a lot of people. And I also think Miz and Gunther is going to surprise a lot of people. My biggest issue is just that like there's not a Survivor Series traditional you know, elimination match. LA Knight is not on the card. He really should be. But I think there's still a mm-hmm. chance for them to solve those issues, at least one of them, maybe both of them, Friday on this go-home SmackDown, which does seem to be getting built up pretty significantly, similar to how, not exactly the same, but similar to, to how, they did the pre-PLE SmackDowns for, I'm trying to think of the events, Backlash in Puerto Rico and Money in the Bank in London. I think it's going to be similarly impactful. So I'm anticipating Friday immensely, but Saturday, yes, I'm at A-. minus. I think the show is going to seriously deliver. It is the final WWE premium live event for the main roster of 2023. And there's basically a two-month gap between that and uh, Royal Rumble they may do obviously a special SmackDown around Christmas. They've done that before, but yeah, I don't know. I, I'm fully invested in this. I also believe it's going to be the best event that they put on out of the last, I guess, three, because I thought Crown Jewel fell below expectations, Fastlane certainly fell below expectations. This one should be, and it feels like it's WWE. I don't want to use the term getting back to basics, but reheating their storylines as we approach WrestleMania season, starting with the Royal Rumble. It could be, it, it, it could be, but also, you know, when you look at a card without Roman Reigns, at least at the moment, without LA Knight, mm-hmm. without a world title picture, you know, that's why I'm really close to a B plus. I just think the two war games matches will be really good and really fun. And, you know, maybe Rhea Ripley's always dark ends up being a banger, mm-hmm. you know, possibly Carlito Santos, maybe, you know, it's a limited card. And when you when you limit the card to currently five matches, it's just heavily on the two feature matches. Right. And I think those will be good. That's why I'm surprised you're not at a B plus. That's my point. But I'm at an A minus. And yeah, I'm heavily anticipating the show. We both are. And let's not forget, we will be back with a WWE Survivor Series. Instant analysis as soon as this show goes off the air Saturday night. But we are not done with today's show because quickly on the way out, we do need to bring you. The last word. 
So DJ, take the needle and just drop it on the record. We gon' have this poppin' in a second. That's why we always save the best cut last to make the scratch and mix for it like fresh cut grass. So I knew this was gonna be a long show. I wanted to choose a simple question for today. We've done a lot of food conversations here, but TC Casa at TC Casa wrote in, he's been debating with his coworkers, best fast food French fry. The battle between five guys and McDonald's is the moment where they are with Wendy's and Chick-fil-A in the running. So we've covered a lot of fast food here, right? I guess we can attack this quickly. First of all, out of the four that you mentioned, Wendy's fries are probably like a bottom three fast food fry I've ever had, especially the new ones. I tried them not too long ago because I had this question in the queue and I knew we were gonna get to it. Disgusting. I'd much rather the plain baked potato at Wendy's any day compared to their fries. In fact, they actually get worse every time Wendy's changes them. Regarding Five Guys <laughs> yeah. fries, and I feel the same way with Five Guys and Burger Fi, they're absolute shit. Just because you get a lot of them doesn't make them good. They're overly greasy. I don't really like the fresh cut. They're not crispy enough. They're too soft and oily. Yeah. So here's my take. If you can get 100% fresh Chick-fil-A fries, like you're sitting down at the restaurant, they take them out of the fryer, those win. The waffle texture is the best. And when they're crispy, they're unbeaten, especially with all their sauces. But since you can't always count on that being the case, then McDonald's wins for me. It's the classic, by far the most consistent. The most underrated are probably Checkers fries, which are battered. Some of you may know that as rallies across the country. Zaxby's has crinkle cut fries that are awesome. I love them, but I don't like the crinkle cut fries from Culver's and Shake Shack, even though they're very similar. And the Arby's Classic Curly also deserve a underdog mention. But my answer is McDonald's, unless Chick-fil-A is fresh out the fryer, super crispy. It's McDonald's and kind of like what you said, but every single fry is good. It's consistently good. Even when they're maybe a little cool, not cold, but like not as warm. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. still crispy. Yeah. To me, it's all about the crisp. You almost never get a bad fry in there. And I'm, I'm much more of a fan of thin fries when you just grab a handful and can stuff them in. Thin fries always work better. The thicker it is, the harder it is to consistently get that form you want, which is why crinkle fries to me, absolute worst. It, it, Interesting. One out of 10 crinkle one out of 10 crinkle fries is a good fry. It's just, it's impossible for anybody to get it right. And it's too, it's too thick. It's too much potato and you can't get it crispy enough. McDonald's fries, still the best, forever the best, impossible to knock off the perch. Real quick follow-up question, not fast food related, but like if you were going to eat a French fry and you could choose any style that you would want, are you like a shoestring guy, a McDonald's style type of guy? Shoestring or thinner, obviously. Or do you have a different, fry preference. If you were had the opportunity, you're, you're, you're opening a restaurant, you're making a burger, you're going to put fries on the side. What kind of fries are you putting next to it? I'm doing, I'm doing the thin McDonald's style. You know, what a burger does it pretty well too. Not mm. enough salt usually, but, but it, it's the easiest one to get right. It's just, it's the most consistent. It's very hard to have a bad set of a bad batch of shoestring fries. So I've had plenty of crinkle cut fries that are fried and crispy to perfection, not one fry, an entire batch. For me, if you can get those right, they're my favorite. This is gonna counter what you, exactly what you just said. I actually really like steak fries, but they have to be crispy. They, you can't trust steak yeah. fries at most places because they're not. They're too soft, 
too potatoey, but if you can get them crispy, yep. they're incredible. But yeah, uh, just wanted to add that as a little bonus here. I'm a little surprised that we're on the same page with the McDonald's fries, but I'm glad that we are. And TC Casa, again, I mean, the five guys being a top choice, I I kind of want to tell you to stop listening to the show. I'm offended that someone would, would have that kind of taste. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. To each their own, of course. But McDonald's, yeah, the consistency is there. They win our uh, award for most consistent, best fast food French fry right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We have a ton of last word questions in the queue. Those will come in subsequent shows. Don't you worry if you have not heard your question. I promise there's a high chance we will get to it, but we do need to wrap up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So on the way out, let me hit you with a ton of reminders. First, our schedule. We will be back on Thursday talking AEW and NXT regarding AEW, the fallout from Full Gear. And of course, NXT is building to NXT deadline next month. And then on Saturday, as soon as WWE Survivor Series goes off the air, we will have a WWE Survivor Series instant analysis podcast right in this feed. So if you're a first time listener, be sure to hit that subscribe button. And of course, we will be back next Tuesday with our WWE Survivor Series fallout along with discussing everything else that happened across SmackDown and Raw. Allow me to also remind you here, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts on Spotify. On Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. You can tweet and DM us questions and comments for the show, and you can vote in our pre- and post-show polls for WWE Survivor Series on Saturday, and those will factor into our Instant Analysis podcast later in that night. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up, you will get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling and exclusive news. This coming Friday, you will get a very special WWE Survivor Series go home show on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over following SmackDown before the premium live event on Saturday. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We have plenty of performance-enhancing audio for your ear holes as this week wraps up for Vintage Chris Mini. This is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now. <laughs>